0: show the curiosity chamber season four we got enough funding to do another season and by funding i mean my bank account no one's paying for this but me damn it if you notice a different logo that is because my cousin shout out to you danielle she drew that from scratch she is an artiste if you will if you want to follow her on instagram Her Instagram name is Limefish Studio, spelled just the way it sounds. If you also notice, the music that we played, the intro music, that's brand new. That only took four seasons to get an intro song. We're going to be keeping that for a while. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get into it, because I'm super excited to talk to this gentleman. With the current events going around with the Ukraine and Russia war, This guy is readily available to talk, and I'm super excited because he expertise in hostile intelligence services, geopolitics of the Ukraine war, and he has an extensive military history. Also, he knows a lot about the classified, which got declassified, UFOs. So we'll talk about that as well. Super excited. Please welcome to the show. This is Matt Reed thanks for being here. appreciate it. Not a problem. The pleasure is all mine. Listen, man, I'm excited to speak with you. I love history. I find it so fascinating, mostly because like essentially it's a blueprint of the future, which it seems like we tend to preach, but ignore it in <laughs> ignorance. You know, Yeah. that's just kind of my perception of it. Before we even get like deep into this. Uh, can we just go ahead and get your credentials first so people know sure that the stuff that we're going to talk about is it, it, it's kind of speculative, but there is some substance here just because of your background.
1: Sure. I'll go ahead and uh, introduce myself. Uh, my name is Matthew Reed. I graduated from the University of St. Thomas in Houston in 2003 with a degree in history, you know, specializing in Western civilization, uh, Europe, Roman Empire, that kind of stuff. Uh, after that, I did four years in the Marine Corps. Uh, I was in civilian life for a little while. Uh, then I went back into the military. This time I went into the army. I went into military intelligence through the army, became an interrogator. Uh, did a couple deployments, Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, again, when I was an interrogator with the, uh, 184th military intelligence company in Iraq in 2009 interrogated some of the top HVIs in the uh, northeastern region of Iraq. Uh, I came back to stateside duty station with the uh, 1st Striker Brigade, 25th Infantry Division, the 1st of the 25th, we call it. I went through some more advanced courses on what we call asset validation tradecraft, and then the source operations course where they teach you how to run certain types of human intelligence sources in semi-hostile, semi-permissive environments. Uh, deployed yeah. again to Afghanistan in two thousand eleven as a non-commissioned officer in charge of my brigade's human intelligence operations shop. Uh, got out of the service for good around March two thousand twelve and then I went to work as a contractor uh, for both the Department of Defense and the u s intelligence community. Uh, my last two years in Afghanistan from uh, late twenty thirteen through the end of twenty fifteen I worked on a strategic uh, clandestine intelligence collection platform. Uh, Most of what I did on there is highly classified, so was what our actual mission was. Uh, Suffice it to say, uh, the existence of our platform was one of those that was approved by people that had to be elected to office, and we reported directly to senior flag officers and US policymakers. And then at the end of 2015, I left that position in Afghanistan, And then I went to the Balkans region of Europe for just right around six years where I worked as a counterintelligence analyst. Uh, My job there was to root out hostile foreign intelligence penetrations of our human intelligence source pool, basically trying to root out double agents that may have been placed against us by the Russians or the Serbian intelligence services. And rooted out a number of those. I got a few scalps on my belt, long story short. Uh, my other mission was to simply make sure that those services could not continue to run those kind of operations against us and basically work with what are called badged and credential counterintelligence agents from the Army and from U.S. Army Europe to uh, more or less just make sure the integrity of our intelligence collection operations was never compromised by any hostile foreign intelligence services. So I did that for right at about six years. Uh, My position did get cut. Unfortunately, I'm back in the States where I've published a number of books through Amazon, Kindle Direct Publishing. And while I'm in between jobs, uh, besides marketing these books, I'm doing a number of podcasts where I'm kind of trying to give people an insider intelligence community perspective on not just current events uh or the war in afghanistan and why things got so jacked up because there, there's so many insider perspectives yeah. that just simply aren't there in the mainstream news media and you know you know, people american people can't you know make good decisions if they're not properly informed so um yeah kind of trying to rectify that on some of the podcasts and then when I get a chance, I like to talk about military history, if, if I'm allowed to, When I uh, talk about the Romans, because pretty much <laughs> you study the Roman Empire through about the late 3rd century A.D., before their military started to decay and disintegrate. They pretty much dang near did everything right, you know, contrasting it with what we did wrong. You contrast the two, you see exactly what it is that we screwed up and how to fix it. So those are the kind of, those, those are the kind of, you know, things that I like to offer uh, podcast viewers and listeners that I think are uh, sorely lacking. And then there's other issues. You know, how does the intelligence community look at the UFO issue? I've addressed that. Um, I know a lot of people would probably like to get a perspective on that without all the, uh, you know, uh, invective and, you know, shaming or, cons- you know, uh, assuming everything is uh, some kind of super you know, dark deep conspiracy i can just provide very uh very good accurate context uh from just the perspective of someone in the intelligence community so yeah beautiful
0: yeah so you've been in the thick of things since like, at, how old were you when you first joined like 18 did you enlist 17 18
1: well so when i when i graduated saint thomas in 2003 it's like i was about just shy of my 24th birthday. So I was considerably oh, okay. older. When, yeah, I, was, I was considerably right. older when I went in. In fact, when I was in the Marine Corps in my unit, they used to call me old man because I was 24.
0: <laughs> wow. Old man, 24. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's because everyone in there is so young. Oh, like yeah. Most, the most guys were yeah. Yeah. They're all babies. <laughs> so did you know that it was going to be a career? before you even signed the the papers to go away? Or is that something you grew into? You're like, I like this. I like what I'm doing here. I can see so, this as a career.
1: It's so, it was kind of a little bit of both. So I didn't yeah. know exactly which direction I was going to take. I had a basic idea of what I wanted to do. I wanted to serve time in the military, wanted to go overseas, wanted to have adventure. And I did know that eventually spy work in the intelligence community is what I wanted to get into. So I figured I'll go. Is that go a hard field to get in? Well, it, it depends on how you do it. Um if you I'll tell people right now, if you want to get into the US intelligence community, have the door thrown wide open to you. Regardless, nine times out of ten, the fastest way to do that is to go serve six or eight years of active duty in the service. Get an MOS that requires a top-secret SCI set of security clearances that are either intelligence or intelligence-related, and that's how you get your foot in the door is you've got to have experience doing the job and having those clearances. For a lot of people who say they graduate college, they say, man, spy work sounds good. Sometimes if you have the right credentials like multiple languages or something in geopolitics, you can sometimes get picked up for the CIA if you're willing to go to the field tradecraft course, the farm we call it, learn how to run category one sources in denied areas, that sort of thing, and take a number of years, but it's a very, very small percentage of kids that graduate college and you know somehow get picked up and go right into it. Um, no, In layman's uh, term, what what does a spy do exactly? Because
0: it's like what you said earlier, we're just the regular civilians are so uneducated about this stuff. When we hear spy, I mean, sure. the first thing that comes to mind is like sneaking into like a, a facility of intelligence and, and grabbing paperwork and leaving.
1: So like, let me provide some context on that. So. What you're describing is generally in the arena of human intelligence, and then what we call counterintelligence. Right? There is some close relation between the two. So, an example: uh, when I went through the source operations course and the human intelligence course at Fort Huachuca, where a lot of the spy work entails. Okay, let's say I I don't, I wouldn't necessarily call myself a spy or an agent. An agent is someone in the enemy camp that we recruit to spy for us or provide the Army, the DOD, or U.S. intelligence with information that either we need, that generals need, or that national-level policymakers need. So let's say I'm what they call a case officer or a source handler, okay? And let's say you're Colonel Yuri Gromov of the Russian GRU, okay? And let's just say I'm working in a foreign posting, you know, we'll say someplace where we have allies. Let's say uh, Warsaw, Poland, right? You're a GRU colonel, Colonel Yuri Gromov. You work at the Russian embassy in Warsaw. And I know because of your background in fighter jets and missiles that you have access to all sorts of information that U.S. intelligence wants, whether that's information on Russian air-to-air missiles, Russian fighter bomber jets, or even who Russian human intelligence sources are that they've gotten Poland running against us. You've got access to that information. So if I'm a U.S. case officer, what do I do? First, I try to learn as much about you as I can. You know, do you, first of all, what are your vulnerabilities? Do you have any you know, perverted sexual proclivities? Are you blackmailable? You know, do you have gambling problems, financial problems? Do you hate your boss? Did the Russian bureaucracy, you know, screw you and your wife over and let your wife die of cancer, stuff like that? Or I look at things that you're interested in. I try to assess where you're vulnerable, and a sharp case officer won't just walk up and try to do all that at once. What I would do, is go up to you maybe at an embassy dinner, because I can talk to you at an actual embassy dinner and Either that, or a meeting of different military departments, which we still used to have with the Russians, and us talking is perfectly normal. It doesn't arouse any suspicion, you know, from my intel people or yours, as you're on official duties. And I get you off by yourself, and we start talking. Maybe I ply you with some drinks, and then you tell me, you know, oh, comrade Mat. You know those bastards in Moscow did not give my wife medical treatment. Now she died, and I have so many gambling debts, blah, 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 right? And I say, man, Yuri, that sucks, dude. Man, your bosses must be real SOBs. I get to know you after a while, and you keep saying how mad you are at them. And I say, you know, Yuri, why don't you say if I told you I could help you get back at those guys? And this this technique isn't just you know, workable in this scenario I'm describing. You know, we might do this to insurgent leaders in Iraq who have other insurgents that they don't like. You know, those different insurgent groups have competing interests. Some were Sunnis, some Shias, some Arabs, some Iranian. You know, you can get them to flip on each other all the time if you play your cards right. Or if you're trying to get sources and organized crime networks so they can feed us information on how the human trafficking networks and how arms smuggling networks work. These basic techniques work. But so back to the scenario. So finally, I tell you, hey, I can help you get back at these guys. And then maybe you say, OK, what do I get in return for it besides getting back at these guys? And. What do you need from me? That kind of thing. And then maybe that's when I do what they call a recruitment pitch. Right. And I'll say, look, uh, if this case officer is sharp, they want to test you. They might ask you for things they already know about to make sure you bring them accurate information the first time. You know, it's just kind of a way to make sure you're not mm. guessing them. But then you say okay, I say, okay, Yuri, here's what I want you to get. I know you've got access to who the GRU's human intelligence sources are in the Polish military. I want that list of names printed out and brought to me. You bring it to me. We make reports on it, and then maybe we share that with Polish counterintelligence, and then bam, Russian GRU network is rolled up and neutralized. Okay? Now, when something that drastic happens, you got to be careful, because Russian counterintelligence is really, really ruthless they see something like that happen all at once and you don't play your cards right with say the polls in this example, then they tend to get real ruthless. And when they get, you know, when the Russian counterintelligence guys in the GRU or the SVR, when they get a, well, shall we say a bad case of the red ass, that's when silencers start coming out and brain matter starts getting splattered on walls. So you have to be careful, but stuff like that, or you might start off with saying, Hey, Bring me the blueprints to that s u thirty five super flanker, and then he brings you those. that gets over to u s intelligence, and that's kind of how that uh that side of the game is played now where it gets deeper and more interesting is where we get into counterintelligence and what are called double agent operations, right so here's a double agent operation. let's say that same scenario you're currently sounds- you thinking. Yeah, they you say you're Colonel Yuri Gromov, okay? I'm running you and then all of a sudden, Russian GRU very carefully, they find out you're the mole. And they come to you and they say, "Hey, Colonel Gromov, don't oh, forget oh, about Jesus. your daughter in Moscow, Svetlana. If you don't want us to execute her or send her to a Siberian labor camp, you're going to start feeding disinformation" to the American oh, spot. Jesus. Matthew Yeah. Reed. So let's say I'm looking for blueprints on, I don't know, a new Russian air-to-air missile. They'll give you disinformation to pass to me. I'll think it's real. And all of a sudden, now they're yeah. passing us false information on their weapon systems. And maybe when we go to war, we think we can shoot those planes down with one missile, and then it doesn't work. Okay? My God, man. That's how that, plays out. Now what I did in Kosovo it was not unlike that. It was on a lower level. You know, it was in a more tactically focused level. But that that double agent back and forth game is uh, something that gets played a lot. And to give you another example where uh stuff tradecraft gets it's not like it's not that it's not just not any way like the movies, but it's a little the real the real way it's done is a little more interesting. So let's say you're a Russian spy and you want to know who the actual US intelligence officers are in, say, the American embassy in Stockholm or Warsaw. Okay? Here's where you can play some games. You walk into the embassy, say you're a Russian who either wants to defect or you're a Russian who wants to spy for the U.S. for money or for motivation, or you just hate your boss, blah, 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 right? Then you sit there, and you would wait and see who comes to talk to you. Is it the guy who runs the cultural attache office, the trade office, whatever? Because these spies will have, they'll have, everybody has cover jobs, right? So they wait for you to come out and then say, huh, so that's what, one of the spies looks like now they can pretend to say oh yeah you know comrade i'm going to give you all this information and then we say here go get us this and then you leave and never come back and now one of our officers is compromised okay they used to call that a dangle all right that's a dangle that's, yeah that's the uh that's the kind of games that uh get played and we've we played games, we got we got played occasionally in Afghanistan. Now, I'll give you a good example where double agent operations can actually get guys killed. So in Afghanistan, there's an intelligence network that caused us a lot of problems called the Haqqani Network. And they've got ties to all kind of shady characters. Um, but long story short, they were kind of almost a fifth column in some ways in terms of how they operated. Um, two guys, Jalaluddin Haqani and Sirayuddin Haqqani, I think they were father and son if I'm not mistaken, they were originally, I think, given some training by us during the 1980s when we were supporting the Mujahideen against the Soviets, uh, to such an extent that at one point in time, Russian counterintelligence services during the Soviet Union tried a lot of times to kill these guys, They never, they were never successful, but They would run operations against us where they'd have human intelligence sources come give us all kind of good information that actually was good. They would actually give up some of their arms caches and let us kill a few small guys so we start trusting the information. Then we did a major operation to hit some houses. Boom. They blew them up. They killed some of our sources, killed some of our human intelligence collectors, and killed some of our uh, door kickers. That's you how you to a trap, yeah. That's how you can set things up. My job was to try to prevent stuff like that from happening. That's got to be stressful. Jesus,
0: man, that how do you sleep at night? Well, There's gotta, it's got it's got to constantly be on your mind, right? Like one false move, one false piece of information that you
1: thought was true could be devastating. Could end lives. In certain cases, it could. Now, it's not like I wasn't, you know in many cases, like we weren't properly equipped for the job. So if things got bad enough, I always had people in U.S. Army Europe that I knew personally. Some guys I'd actually served with in Afghanistan that had gotten promoted up the ranks and so on and so forth. Uh, Sometimes they would provide you things like, you know, technical collection assets to help you spy on guys, see what they were up to. It wasn't easy to get that approved, but I mean, it was there. But they, if you've, If you've been trained in tradecraft, if you've been an interrogator, if you've played the human intelligence game from one end and you know what to look for, you know how to set up things to basically do continual investigations on these operations, if you use certain tried and true techniques, it almost doesn't matter how good the other case officer is or the guy is running this double against you, they always, always make a mistake somewhere. You just have to know what to look for and just be on your toes and ready to catch it when they make it. That's like a human chessboard. That's what it seems like. It very much is. Um, You don't always know who the other case officer or case officers are, though in my case, I had a pretty good idea. Uh, I wasn't 100% sure, but in some cases, I had it narrowed down to about, you know, four or five suspects that I thought were candidates, but... um, there are ways you can, you can find out. I mean, some of it's pretty simple. You know, if I'm running you as a source and, you know, you're in whatever organized, some organized crime group, okay? And you're, say, Serbian organized crime. And I know I know I, I know I can't trust you because you know how tight the Serbs are with the Russians. What I might do is go to someone else who's in organized crime who I know I can trust and say, hey, man, I need you to do something for me. I need you to check out old Yuri Grelikovic over there. Let me know what he does when he leaves, blah, 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 whatever. And then you tell me, oh, Mr. Matt, I went and got you what you needed. But the other guy says, hey, he didn't go there. He went right into that Serb security service office. And here's the photos. And without telling you, I'm like, huh. Ooh, I got your ass now. But I don't say that. I say, oh, OK, man, show me what you got. Wow, well, that's good information. Then I like go your back cards close to your chest. Oh, yeah, you always do that. So I go back, yeah, I file a report, Now I call US Army Europe, I talk to my bosses, a major or a colonel, I say, Hey, here's a deal. You know, and if I can't take you and then start, you know, giving you little bits of false information to take back to your hand, it's call a triple, a kind of a triple agent. If I can triple you back, um, I may call maybe another certain agency that has better resources and say, Hey, This guy is a good disinformation conduit. You maybe you go to like you know the uh, chief of station at the embassy and say, "Hey, do you want to run this guy?" And sometimes they'll say yes. Other times they'll just say, "You know, Mr. Reed, thank you so much. Can we have that file? And will you please not mention this to anyone?" And out of professional courtesy, I say, "Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir." And I take it to the grave with me.
0: Is there? Let's talk about um, the the agent that's trying to compromise yuri is there a specific characteristic that you're looking for in these people
1: it varies so this all comes down it to does the digital, vary okay I think oh, it works. varies it varies considerably yeah. so when you right, like when you look at it, it all comes down to human intelligence and this is where the good and the bad of it right the key word is human so when you're dealing with human intelligence <laughs> You are dealing with the most unpredictable, volatile organism on the planet, and that is another human being. So if you're going to be a human intelligence collector, we say in the Army or in the CIA or DIA, a case officer, you kind of have to be a reasonably nice, smart, but easygoing, personable guy. Because you have to get this person to open up to you, and if they really do want to spy for the U.S. for the right reasons, and we do sometimes have those people, you've got to be able, because those people are putting their lives on the line against some very dangerous characters. They're taking a lot of risk. You've got to be personable, but you've also got to exude strength and confidence at the same time. And you can't be someone whose words are hollow. If you say you're going to do something for them, you have got to do it. Okay. You have to be able to make them trust you that you're going to look out for them. And when the time comes and the shit hits the fan, you're going to be able to get to them and get them out of whatever jam they're in. That's right, usually right. that. sometimes that's a lot easier said than done. but it's one of those things you have to think about. And If you're a competent case officer, this is just just one of those things you just have to do. So it really does vary. Um, it can be as simple as the vulnerabilities I described with, you know, car- fictional Colonel Yuri Gromov, or it could be something as simple as, you know, this guy just walks right in and says, hey, I want to make some extra money on the side, you know, because I'm just a venal, greedy SOB. And uh, tell me what I can do and what are you going to pay me? Stuff like that. Can There's happen. that human factor. There it is again. With greed. the ego. <laughs> it, it, it Yep. It runs the gamut. And what I found is that sometimes you can never, no matter how much you know about someone, you can never be sure. You know, case in point, when I was an interrogator in Iraq, coming out of the interrogation course at Fort Huachuca, um, they gave me a pretty good baseline of preparation. There's nothing like the first time you do it. Um, So I go in, you know, to do my first interrogation. And this guy got in front of me, man. He looks scared. I mean, he looks just scared to death unbelievable the guys just scared oh, he looks like he's scared shitless and yeah talking about how he misses his mom and all that other stuff i mean the guy was like oh, boy. i think he like crapped himself from the striker vehicle we had to give him army pt shorts to wear are uh, you
0: serious oh, yeah man
1: God. we the two crapped himself so we i go in there to you know interrogate this guy and this whole thing's being all by interrogations. They're videotaped, by the way, and they're reviewed by JAG officers. It's, you're under you're an interrogator boy, are you under some god awful scrutiny? So you got to know how to work under that strain and pressure, especially if you got to do a bunch of them a day. And so I go in there and I screw the damn thing up, but. Point is, I thought, okay, I'm going to go in hard, and I'm going to break this guy like a twig. I'm going to get information. I'm going to impress my commander. And, you know, my boss, Major Hartsock, is going to be telling everybody that I'm the greatest thing since sliced bread. You know, go me. (laughs) And I go in there doing that, and all the guy does is bite his thumbnail and stare at me.
0: Oh, Jesus. Just stare at me.
1: I'm like, what and, of course, my, my squad leader, my, my my squad leader, Sergeant Kim's kind of laughing. He was like, hey, man, I told you don't go in there and do the hard stuff first, but you didn't want to listen. And then there were, there were other times when we might have a guy who we thought was a really, really hard case. We had all these targeting packets on and patterns of life. This guy's killed a bunch of people, you know, he some guy in his network, you know, looked at his wife, and you know, he shot the guy in the back of the head. I thought, "Okay, this guy's a hard be a hard nut to crack." You go in there and throw your clipboard down and yell and the dude starts crying. So it's yeah, like you could never don't be Don't have 100- expectations, I guess. Oh, guy, yeah, you can you can I learned real quick that you could never be 100% sure and I learned that going in with a hard approach is not Always the best way. If the guy you catch has been trained by an intelligence service, and you know, we ran into guys like that, uh, especially if they've ever had any training by the Russians, you know, you'd be surprised where you find those types of dudes. Um, and they're very good at training what we call interrogation resistance techniques, and usually after a couple of interrogations, you can tell that they've had training in it and there was one guy I interrogated twice, who we suspect had that form of training. I think the second time I interrogated him was seven hours and forty-five minutes, roughly. And, Jesus. Oh, it straight? was straight. Straight. It was mentally exhausting. It's like imagine doing mental yeah. judo or mental jujitsu. And this guy was smart. Like this guy, even though I was talking through an interpreter, uh, you know, an Arabic interpreter. This guy was real good at twisting my words. I mean, he would have made an excellent lawyer. This guy was not stupid, (laughs) you know, and it was, it really was one heck of a learning experience because what it showed me was, in spite of all the good training they gave me at Fort Huachuca, it very quickly made it clear to me just how much I didn't know about the profession and how much more I had to learn.
0: Some of these guys would be willing to take it to the grave, like willing to die for that to not give up the information.
1: There were quite a few that were now we were not allowed to do you know what they call enhanced interrogation. we couldn't really do anything couldn't even do too much yelling or threatening that was you could turn
0: off the camera, slap them around.
1: No, we couldn't do that that was <laughs> if you were in a conventional unit that that day in time you couldn't do that we couldn't do water well, those are
0: the movies, movies right you see well, that
1: shit all the time in the movies. <laughs> That's bullshit. It can be done just not by a conventional unit. You have to have what are called separate operating authorities approved by senior U.S. policymakers. So what you see in the movie Sicario, where, you know, Josh Brolin's in there with that cartel knucklehead and they turn off the camera and leave and leave him in the uh interrogation room with Benicio del Toro. There's places where stuff like that can happen. I mean, we have if People who are elected to office, like you hear in Sicario, that one FBI administrator tells Emily Blunt's character, look, this operation has been approved by people elected to office. They've moved the goalposts. So almost anything can be done. But there is a control mechanism, and it does, in, there are certain things that cannot be done unless they are approved by people who have been elected to office, meaning congressmen, senators, or the president of the National Security Council. Uh, of course, you know, you've heard about things like black sites, right? Yeah. And uh, places like, uh, well, we got a lot of places where you put those black sites. Everybody kind of knows what they are, you know, people in, you know. Certain Eastern European countries, you know, they uh, they bring the guys there, and then you know, some guy from whatever old East European secret service who smells like vodka, smokes like a chimney, and you know, just loves to, uh, you know, electrocute people's nutsacks or something. I mean, that's right. You know, a lot of those old East that's European that's what type. Happens, huh? Well, I tell you, I'm gonna tell you a uh, you want I'm gonna tell you an actual Russian interrogation method, okay? This is something the Russians have been known to do. So, what they would do, they take a guy, you know, strap him to a chair, and if they're in a, you know, reasonably nice mood, they wouldn't start out by just beating the hell out of you like Colonel Ozarov did on, uh, you know, Season 3 of Stranger Things. They might just come in, you know, strip off your britches, and uh, what they might do is they'll take an electrical wire, They'll shave off rubber and leave about six inches of copper sticking out. They'll heat that copper up with a propane torch, get it just glowing red hot. Jeez. They'll shove that up the hole of a guy's dick, let it sit there for about 30 seconds, and then yank it out. Whoa. And they'll say, Comrade, you think that was painful? This is just taste of what is going to happen. Maybe you want to talk to Comrade Svetlana and make this easy, yes? Just broke your dick. Man, more or less... You know, they uh That's insane they just... holy shit, man. Oh I in fact the uh I'll tell you an actual uh actual story about an a counterterrorism operation operations the Russians ran when somebody kidnapped one of their diplomats. So um I don't know I don't know if you're old enough to remember this, but back around I wanna say it was nineteen eighty four, early nineteen eighty five Our CIA chief of station in uh, Beirut, Lebanon, Bill Buckley, was actually kidnapped by a, I believe it was a splinter group from Hezbollah. And they demanded a ransom. Um, President Reagan ordered us to pay, it. I believe he was friends with Bill Buckley, who was also a former Marine officer, I believe. And Hezbollah took the ransom, executed Bill Buckley, dropped his corpse off outside of our embassy, and then just drove away. Ha ha, we were a little bit richer. Well, that same splinter group from Hezbollah decided to kidnap some lower-ranking Russian diplomat and his wife. And then they went and bragged about it in such a way that CNN ran a story about it. Mm. And, you know, it isn't just Americans who watch CNN. The Russians used to watch it all the time. And when the CNN broadcast is airing, there was a Russian KGB official named Vladimir Kroichkov. Look that guy up. Probably one of the most loathsome human beings that God ever breathed life into on the Russian steppe plane. Guy just looked nasty. But he was reasonably good at his job. So, he knows that his boss, Konstantin Chernyanko, the Soviet premier, isn't going to like that. So he calls some friends in KGB and the GRU, and he says, hey, Moscow and the Politburo, Kremlin says, we've got to fix this. We need to make sure that this doesn't happen again. So, what did the russians do they sent a spetsnaz goon squad down to beirut and what they initially tried to do was the uh, the ayatollah who was leading this splinter group from hezbollah they were going to try to kidnap him but they couldn't get to the guy the guy was real good at sneaking around and hiding because he had been getting hunted by the israelis for so long he was pretty good at staying hidden so the russians looked around and said wait a minute this guy's got a family doesn't he the light bulb clicks on. So the Russians went. They kidnapped this ayatollah's He bro- was his brother-in-law. They drug him back to the embassy. They chopped his balls off, shot oh. him in the head, and they sawed his head off with some kind of a rusty hacksaw. Holy shit! You know, communist. Yeah, communist-made piece of junk saw probably broke three or four times. And uh, they put all that—the severed testicles and his, you know, his decapitated head—in a burlap sack and they just drop it outside the doorstep to this Ayatollah's mosque. The Ayatollah comes out there and opens up that burlap sack, sees his brother-in-law's decapitated head, and severed testicles. He also looks on his forehead and sees there's a note driven to the forehead of his brother-in-law's decapitated head, and it's a big sheet of paper with KGB red sword and shield lettering on it, and it says... Give us our diplomat back, or another family member is next, and don't you ever dick with us again. Wow. And this particular Russian diplomat and his wife were returned to the embassy about two hours later with a handwritten note of apology. Oh my God. Wow. Yeah, that's one way to get shit done, I guess. <laughs> right? Yeah,
0: they <laughs> actually did that. That's insane. God, the horror, the terror. There's no rules, man. There's just no
1: rules with that shit. Well, there isn't. The, uh, in fact, Hezbollah found that out again a few months later. It was later in 1985, I believe, uh, when the Israelis and Hezbollah were just shooting at each other left, right, and center across, you know, the, uh, not the Golan Heights, the uh, the Valley. And uh, when Hezbollah was shooting some of their crappier, of all things, Russian-made rockets at the Israelis, (laughs) sometimes their rockets would go off course, and apparently they kept landing in the Russian embassy courtyard and (laughs) killed some Russian diplomat's dog. Are you serious? Okay. Yeah, now, so the funny thing about Russians, this is where a lot of Russians are a little bit like a lot of, uh, you know, deep south rednecks that really, really love their hunting dogs, you know. I've hunted right, with right. guys who sooner sort of give up their wife and their favorite dog. <laughs> well, the R- Russians get a little emotional about that kind of stuff, so Moscow wasn't happy. So the Russians knew most of Hezbollah had their strings somewhat pulled by the Iranians. So they set up a meeting with the Iranians. I think it was in Syria. Because Russia, remember, always had air bases in Syria. They were always tight with the Syrians and the Assad family. Because Hafez Assad was a communist, a secular guy, but a communist and they told the iranians they said okay they said here's what's going to happen if another one of your crappy little rockets and the iranians are like wait a minute dude you're the one who made them and of course the other Ayatollahs told us like don't shut up don't piss them off (laughs) so the russians told them they said another one of your rockets lands in our courtyard or anywhere near our embassy they said, we're going to call the Americans at NORAD and let them know that we're running a test of one of our new intercontinental ballistic missiles. And then mm. we'll be running the test in Central Asia, you know, kind of close to where Iran is. And, you know, some of our guidance systems are sometimes crappy compared to the Americans. You know, they tend to go off course. He said, what's going to happen is that missile is going to go with a high yield, like 801 megaton warhead, is going to go off course. And it's going to just happen to land on Tehran and detonate. They said that's what's going to happen if another one of your rockets lands inside our embassy courtyard or hits close enough to hurt one of our employees and they said, "And when that's done, you know you pull it again, we're going to move VX nerve gas into Syria, and then we're going to plaster the Bekov Valley with it and just kill all your buddies. Jesus, man, I mean it's the Russians that made it in the first place. What are they to do not use them? Yeah, don't tell the Russians that. All they know is you just piss them <laughs> off. And right. You know, that's an exercise in futility, my friend, let me assure you. So they, the Iranians are like, inshallah, this will not happen again, meaning God willing, it's not going to happen again. And, of course, the Iranians told their advisor on the ground, they grabbed Hezbollah. They're like, dude, knock that shit off. Right. I don't care if you... Israeli target by a half a mile. We cannot <laughs> have this shit happen again. Those vodka swilling Slavs are going to bury our asses. Yeah, yeah. And you know, of course, you know the uh, at least for the rest of the '80s and the Cold War, the Russians didn't have too many problems. Of course, another thing people don't know: the Russians sometimes used the East European intelligence services back in the Cold War as a proxy. Because the Russians didn't treat their quote-unquote allies like we do. The Russians just, you know, they slam a boot heel down onto their throats and they just keep it there. That's why a lot of East Europeans hate them so much. And so what they did, they were using the Romanian intelligence service as a proxy. Here's what a lot of people don't know. So back in the 70s and 80s, the Romanian intelligence service was blackmailing Yasser Arafat. So what, what what had happened is Yasser Arafat was apparently a homosexual, had a decent number of homosexual lovers. You know, he was a giver and a taker. And the Romanian Intelligence Service, I can't remember what they were called. But it was run by a Romanian general named uh, Ion Mihail Pasepa. So he was working as a proxy for the Russian KGB, of course. And uh, they had all the videotapes and sound recordings of Arafat, you know, engaging in his various sexual activities. And they knew that if they released those in the Middle East, I mean, Arafat would just probably get killed. So right. they were using Arafat as a way to collect intelligence against both the U.S. and the Israelis. And that's how they got him to do it. But it was the Romanian intel service blackmailing him. But what the Arafat and the Palestinian Liberation Organization didn't know is... Romains, of course, have then taking that information and giving it back to the Russians. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so I would like to jump into, I mean, we were just talking about proxies and close with Russia. So, I mean, that like kind of leads up to
1: where we're at right now with sure. Russia-Ukraine, right? Sure. So... I can go ahead and sum that up, and what I'll do is I'll just talk a little bit about Russian military history, kind of why they think the way they do the Cold War, how we brought the Soviet Union down, declining Russian birth rates, and I'll show you how that ties into analysis we did at U.S. Army Europe, and I'm going to tie that in with some analysis done by a prominent analyst named Peter Zaihan. I'm going to show you where these different analysis fit together, how yeah. it fits in with the future problem of uh, nuclear weapons trafficking, so here goes. So, well, it's it's so first, of all,
0: it's just so important for you to discuss yes.
1: this because all all
0: people that are seeing like the the typical person on TV is just seeing that oh Russia is invading Ukraine and now there's almost a nuclear war. No one knows like the extent of it, like how we got to this place right now. There's a whole
1: backstory leading up to this. That's a massive backstory. In some respect, yeah. the backstory goes back four or five hundred years. Oh, um, Jesus! So, <laughs> we we don't have we don't have to go back that far. I can summarize, but so <laughs> we got all day. First, first you look at Russian geography. Okay, it, it's freaking huge, right? Yeah. And Russian geography is odd in that it can be both a it's a double edged sword. It's both a blessing and it's a curse. The only time their geography is a blessing is when somebody really big tries to invade them, like the German, Vermont, Napoleon, the Poles in the 1920s, the Swedes in the 18th century. They all had a go at it at one point in time. Of course, they all lost. Just ask Napoleon. <laughs> Didn't work out too good for him. No. But uh, <laughs> so that geography, it's rough and brutal geography. The only way a people can survive and overcome and thrive is through sheer dogged determination and brute force and being willing to sacrifice elements of their own population. Think about what Russia is mm-hmm. known for. Okay. Yeah. They are the way they are. The same reason we and the Europeans are. We're products of our geography, our history, and our experiences, all brought together. So, yes. the Russians were always having to fight off invasions. Sometimes from the Mongols and from China, and then in more recent histories, the last few centuries, almost every single existential invasional threat they have faced has come from the West, from Europe. Okay, the Swedes, the Poles, Napoleon. And, of course, the biggest one, the German Wehrmacht in World War II. Now, let me point out, in the Second World War, the Russians lost 27 million people, military and civilian, fighting off the German Wehrmacht and the Nazis. Over a span Um, of how long? About four and a half years. Jesus. So, the Russians lost more civilians at the Battle of Leningrad to starvation than all the soldiers, sailors, and airmen we lost in the entire war. Just kind of put that in perspective. My no, eyes no, just popped out, out of my head. head. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And regardless wow. of what you think about the Russians or any group of people, that is going to leave a scar on you. So you take that combined yes. with Russia's history because of the way they've evolved. And the person who articulated the Russian mindset to their neighbors the best was our ambassador to Moscow in World War II, or, or a guy named George Kennan. And he was the architect or the author of something called the Long Telegram. If you're a student of American foreign policy, reading this thing is required reading. It basically articulated our containment strategy against the Russians and the Soviet Union post-World War II. Kennan knew the culture, knew the people, spoke the language, you know, knew their military history backwards and forwards. And he said, in the Russian mindset, they only have two types of neighbors, vassals and enemies. You're either their bitch where they've got a boot on your throat, or you're their enemy. There is no in-frickin'-between, period. Now, how do the Russians control and subvert their neighbors to secure their borders, get some strategic depth? They have a very simple method. Up to the Soviet era, they used what were called Kozaks, Russian, traditional Russian paramilitary troops. They used to, they were gone in the communist era. Putin brought them back. But basically, they slipped their Kozaks into these countries— in civilian clothes, stir up trouble. They might have their Kozak troops even kill some of their own people, attack their own, you know, diplomats in Russian embassies. And the Russians say, Comrade, you are causing problem. You have You One of our diplomats get killed. Maybe we roll in with the Red Army and we fix problem." So, Russian injected instability, Russian solutions injected into a Russian-backed Proxy problem that allows them to occupy the place just enough to get the Red Army in there, and then bam, they slap that Red Army boot down. That's how they get security and strategic depth. They've been doing it back and forth for centuries. So get to through World War II um, and give you a little little backstory in World War II. The uh, the Russians I got did a not. Quick beat
0: question them. for you, sure. real quick. Is it uh, so? the reason why there's no in-between for the russians is that based off paranoia or
1: or what It paranoia in their history just because even before they were a fully unified country i mean going back to the era of you know even kievon russ they were overrun by the mongols coming in from china the huns before that um yeah. trying to somehow it's paranoia about foreigners and invasion is very, very deeply rooted in their mindset. Um, Definitely. It's, 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 it's very hard for outsiders to really, really get it and understand it. Cause it's it, in a way it almost seems almost alien to us, but it's their geography and their history is what it really comes down to. Gotcha. So yeah, yeah. during the second world war, the Russians didn't beat the Germans by just overwhelming them with mass number. That was a bunch of BS that the German general staff fed us at the end of World War II because they were these, you know, high-class, high-minded Western Europeans. They did not want to admit that with their superior technology, they somehow got beat by these people they considered to be, you know, inferior, vile, unsophisticated Slavic heathens. But decades after the war, A lot of German colonels and sergeants started writing books about their experiences fighting the Russians, and we realized, holy cow, they actually outsmarted the Germans a few times. Uh, Case in point, you probably heard about the Battle of Stalingrad. Oh, yeah, definitely. So how did the Russians trap the German 6th Army? It was strategic use of counterintelligence. You mean those double agent operations I was telling you about? Yeah. The Russians ran that at a deep strategic level against both the Germans and the British, and they coordinated those operations down to the lowest Russian rifle squad. So how'd they do it? Well, first, the Russians were getting extremely good, accurate intelligence on German weapon systems. The Germans assumed the Russians must have had moles in their army. Mm -hmm. Well, the Russians didn't have that many moles in the German army, just enough to push disinformation. The uh, spies who were giving the Russians all that intelligence on German weapons were five British spies who went to jail in the 50s and 60s and were known as the Cambridge Five, McLean, Burgess, Blunt, Philby, and some other knucklehead. The Russians had compromised them back in the 20s and 30s. So what did the Russians do to protect those five spy assets they had in British intelligence who they suborned and compromised? They use their assets in Germany to give disinformation to German SS counterintelligence, making them think that it was certain German officers and generals who were giving the Russians the information on German weapon systems. The Germans executed all of them, thinking they got rid of the spies, when in fact the spies were five Brits. So that's how the Russians protected those assets. They continued to get that intelligence. The Germans thinking they didn't have those sources anymore. So the Russians ran a lot of good... They ran incredibly effective disinformation double agent operations against the Germans. And they made the Germans more or less think that the bulk of the Russian army was nowhere near Stalingrad. The Germans sacri- the Russians sacrificed the city and the population, no doubt. So what they did, they knew the German logistics system was really being stretched. I mean, boy, was it getting stretched to the breaking point. So they pulled back. The Germans go in to grab Stalingrad. Now we tend to hear about how the Russians supposedly use mass number to bowl over their enemies. That's not really true. They'll use a coordinated mass attack to poke the enemy lines to see where the weak point is. The second they identify the weak point, they barrel up fist up, coordinate with firepower and they hit with everything they got into that weak point so they can break Mm -hmm. through and encircle the enemy. That's what they actually do. So, you look at the the, yeah, the Axis units, the Germans and their allies at Stalingrad. Okay, mm-hmm. the largest number of Axis troops were Hungarians and Italians, a lot of whom were conscripts, slaves, concentration camp inmates, and you know like the German you know German allies, Romanians who didn't want to be there. That was the majority of the troops, whereas the smallest amount were the German Sixth Army of Wehrmacht and SS. Okay. Where do you think the weak point in the lines really was? It wasn't, it was with the larger number of troops who had piss poor training, like the Italians, who you know, they probably had the shortest list of war heroes in the whole damn war. Uh, and so People who didn't the Russians Peter, drew, right? oh, yeah, the Italians were just known for surrendering, they kind of didn't want to be there, so the Russians. <laughs> took their forces, they hit as hard as they could where the largest number of Axis troops were because those were the troops they, were, they knew were poorly trained, they just ran right over them. And they encircled the German 6th Army, they kept just enough troops to keep Friedrich von Paulus's 6th Army bottled up and basically starve them out. And then von Paulus had to surrender, and there's a massive gap opened up in the Russian lines. They tried to plug it at the tank battle of Germans lost that one also because of strategic Russian use of uh, counterintelligence. And one of the things that the Russians would do shows you what cunning SOBs they can be. Uh, Early on in World War II, the best source of human intelligence the German Wehrmacht and SS had were Russian troops who were surrendering. So here's how the Russian counterintelligence services like the NKVD and then one called SMERSH That was a Russian military counterintel organization. They're the ones who threw Alexander Solzhenitsyn in uh, Siberia after the war. Uh, That's one of the things they're known for. But they took all their counterintelligence agents and dressed them up as privates, lieutenants, and sergeants. And all along the Eastern Front, they'd have them surrender to German units. The Germans would come to collect the POWs, and the other counterintel troops would ambush the Germans and kill them. Well, the German, Wehrmacht, heard about this, and they got told by, uh, I think it was Field Marshal Manstein, maybe. Either way, German high command says, from now on, any Russian soldier who surrenders you to shoot him on sight. Oh, shit. As far as the Russians are concerned, that kills two birds with one stone. Kills off the source of human intelligence and kills off men who they think are traitors, and the Germans just did the Russians' work for
0: them. damn, man. Okay. Ruthless. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: So... We get to the end of World War II. The, the scenario I described with the Kozaks, the Russians did something similar with what we called a, uh, an illegals network. It used to be called the Red Orchestra in World War II. Um, that was a, basically a uh, Russian communist intelligence network. The Germans tried to shut it down and annihilate it. It's one of the reasons Reinhard Heydrich, the SS war criminal, was so ruthless in Prague he was trying to wipe that Russian network out. And again, they call it the Red Orchestra. He he failed mostly because the British got some guys to whack him. Um, oh. and so they still had those networks. That's how they subverted Czechoslovakia and Hungary. Now, we fast forward a little ways, we get to the seventies. The United States, mm-hmm. Germany, Britain, and the West are seriously considering doing a crash program to make sure all of our electricity and basic energy is generated by nuclear power plants. To get us off at least the fossil fuel for energy and electricity and heat, sure. not for cars, but for general electricity and energy needs, right. as they see how, how dangerous the Middle East can be. Yeah. Well, that was a potential existential threat to the Russians, because the only export the Russians in the Soviet Union had that they could make money off of was oil and gas. Mm-hmm. Okay. So... They had a very effective subversion campaign they ran with their sleeper agents in the U.S., Canada, Britain, and Germany. They're the reason we were never able to go completely to nuclear power, okay? Now, the French did that in the 70s, and they were successful, one reason being because of how incredibly ruthless French counterintelligence was. All the Russian sleeper agents, the French just killed every last damn one of them. They didn't give a shit. Oh, yeah, I've dealt with the French counterintelligence guys, and they... When they get directions, they can be pretty damn ruthless. Uh, it's, damn. It's, it's pretty well known in Europe. you know you do enough dumb stuff they catch you. But uh, they were successful in stopping the U.S., Britain, you know, Norway, Canada and Germany from switching to nuclear power. You know the whole anti-nuclear weapons, the whole anti-nuclear power movement. A whole big chunk of that was a Russian intelligence operation. and boy did it work. So they do that, and they're successful. They screwed us big time. But the United States Department of Defense and the intelligence community start deciding it's time to hit back. Certain arrangements were made to try to make sure that President Ronald Reagan won the election, which he did in 1981. Yeah. And the way we brought the Russians to their knees, it was kind of three things. One, everybody knows about the Star Wars defense, strategic defense initiative, did a number on the Russians, gave us some advantages. A massive conventional military buildup to convince them that they could not defeat us conventionally, so they wouldn't try it. And then, one of the bigger points, we cut some deals with the Saudis to dramatically crash oil prices. Okay. Is this the uh, so we, with Kissinger? No, this is this started this with Reagan when we did this. Okay. Okay, this was, yeah. this was worked out with the Reagan administration, Weinberger, and uh, George P. Schultz, I believe. So. We cut some deals with the Saudis, basically promising them more U.S. military protection for their, you know, pampered-ass royal family, whatever. And they agreed they crashed oil prices, okay? And Mm -hmm. which, of course, helped us get our economy going because we had cheap gas. But that dramatic crashing of oil prices was a crippling blow to the Soviet Union. And that's part of what helped them bring them crashing down in 1992. So they go down in flames. Yee-haw, kumbaya you know time to celebrate right mm, well not really is this what we know as the petrol uh, the petro dollar no the petroleum is, dollar it's, so it's, yeah it's well it's in some ways petro dollar is kind of a misnomer no one's ever going to be able to you know show me one there's they, they talk about it a lot but uh We've actually insulated ourselves, you know, well enough with being energy independent to where the size could go on or tomorrow, and it would probably actually help us in the long run, so the joke's going to be on them. I heard they just but, joined uh, BRICS. Oh, they could, but here's, here's what people just don't understand about how the world works post-World War II. What mm-hmm. allows the, the global environment to work? Is because ever since 1947, the U.S. Navy has used its ships to patrol all the world's ocean, sea, and shipping lanes. That's the Navy's primary mission since 1945, okay? Wow. It's what allows China to import oil from the Middle East to survive. So mm-hmm. China's actually dependent on that. We secured the Persian Gulf, and China's actually been the biggest beneficiary of that. Um Pretty much all the nations in Europe, the reason the Europeans don't have to build empires anymore since 1945 is because they don't have to. Because we secure the world's sea lanes, they can import a lot of stuff, raw materials, and then export finished products. Having to secure those shipping lanes and resources is one of the reasons the Europeans had to build empires in the you know 18th and 19th centuries. They don't have to do that because we do it for them. But we don't have to do it for them anymore. There's nothing in it for us, and we're energy independent. So if we pull back and there's no other neighbors to secure the world's sea lanes, what happens? A whole lot of countries are pretty much screwed, Europe included. So we're we're really not in not in the kind of existential economic danger a lot of people would think we are because no one else can secure the world's sea lanes. I mean, yeah, China's got a huge navy, but most of their vessels are diesel-powered. They don't, they can't sail like more than a thousand miles. Whereas most of ours are nuclear-powered. The Russian, you know, the Russian surface fleet has less firepower than one American carrier battle group. They don't have the ability to do it for everybody, and even if they did, they'd only do it for themselves. That's what's got the Europeans yeah. so panicky and going nuts right now. Cause like, hey, uh. How do we build big navies to go secure the resources we need to survive when the Americans have been doing it for us since 1945 and no one's got an answer? Yeah, I
0: didn't even think about that aspect. I was just so concerned about if oil stopped being sold in U.S. dollars that the supply and demand for USD would plummet and then, you know, like life
1: out here Ah. would be shit. Well, they even if they did, okay, if they did that, we'd stop patrolling, say, the Persian Gulf, which we might be pulling out anyway. Yeah. China gets a huge chunk of its oil and energy from Persian Gulf oil and gas. Mm-hmm. If the Iranians and the Saudis start shooting at each other, which they probably will, China's lifeblood's caught in the crossfire. And what's that do to them? Yeah. So, wow. it would be a lot worse for them than it would be for us. But, um, so, you yeah, know, back to the collapse of the Soviet Union. So, Mm-hmm. First big national security problem we had was, you know, we were worried about nuclear weapons trafficking because the Russians all of a sudden their financial systems gone, medical systems collapsed, they can't secure their nukes. We came up with various ways to handle that, but here's something else that happened that a lot of people haven't looked at. So in 1992, when the Soviet Union collapsed, Russia, excuse me, Russia had about a 60% drop in birth rate like that. And... Over the next twenty years, millions of beautiful young Russian girls either fled the Soviet Union and Russia, or were trafficked out by either mail-order bride organizations or organized crime. For the past I couple, love two, Russian women. Decades, oh, <laughs> they are hot, aren't they? Oh man, I like. This. I want <laughs> weakness. <laughs> That's it. That's it. Was funny. <laughs> if you go to when I was stationed over in Europe, you go to Western Europe most of their red light district brothels have always been staffed by russian east european women and these western european countries know this because they collect tax revenue off the brothels so Uh the the european governments that run the finance side always ask their intelligence services to turn a blind eye to it because hey good looking girls brings in good revenue hey what do we care sure you think about that drop in birth rate the medical system collapses Russia has an opioid and drug epidemic, an HIV and tuberculosis epidemic that is far worse than anything going on in the U.S. I mean, it is Jesus bad. Man. Wow. And so a 60% drop in birth rate. Millions of Russian girls trafficked overseas for the last 30 years. Run this out and see what it does to a de- to demographics or to a population. Okay, so the Russians are about to undergo a massive population collapse and a population inversion and peter zihon another guy you might want to check out you could probably get him on your podcast he'd be happy to come on geopolitical analyst he's done some detailed analysis on this and i can tell you it's right on the money so it's russia's population has declined so much that by like 2040 the bulk of the russian people under the age of 50 are going to be more or less very close to dying off so it's at a point where up to a few years ago, and Peter Zihon kind of sounded the alarm on this, he says, hey, by the end of the 2020s, Russia will not be able to field an army even half the size of the one that they have now. And there's some variation on the numbers, or some people disagree on some small things, but we do agree in, in U.S. Army Europe, Russia's declining population is a major national security manpower problem for their army. So the longer they wait, to do what they need to do to get strategic depth and security, like invading Ukraine, Romania, Bulgaria, whatever, the Mm -hmm. longer they wait, the harder it'll be for them. And they see this as an existential threat. Gotcha. So they went at, we, we, I, I I was always pretty sure they were going to make a go at Ukraine. So were a lot of other analysts. I laid out all the facts. I used Peter Zihon's analysis when I presented some of my briefings. And I said, look, From the Russian point of view, this makes sense to them. It may not make sense to us, but it makes sense to them. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people, some people agree with me, some disagree. They looked at it and said, well, it'd be too risky for the Russians to do that. And I said, guys, the Russians have never been afraid of taking risks in case you haven't read your military (laughs) history. I mean, like risk is their middle name. They're not suicidally risky, but if it may kill half a million Russians or Russian soldiers to them, that's a justifiable loss. That's a justifiable risk. Good lord. So, right? They, yeah. So they, they hit Ukraine now. Yeah. We may say, okay, if we can contain them, maybe bleed them and keep them under control for the next twenty years. The Russians die off. Kumbaya. The problem's gone. It gets even worse. And here's what nobody is thinking about. And this is this is something I went into when I was. I think I was on the Cleared Hot podcast. I went into this, and this is just something that's not being talked about in the news. When the Russians do finally start to die off and they can't field military or security services anymore, how are they going to secure the thousands upon thousands of nuclear weapons they have? Well, that's interesting. When they go under, and un- now, granted, this, a lot of things could change, unless something changes, then they will eventually go under probably by the middle of the century, and we're not just talking about suitcase nukes like we were worried about in the 90s we're talking high-yield thermonuclear warheads you know is there one small country that isn't going to want to make a go at russia to pick over their bones and grab those nukes and the answer is (laughs) quite a few of them will so when those of us in the intelligence community look at that problem long term we need some place to station assets to be able to contain the dying Russia, and make sure the wrong people don't get their grubby little paws on all those damn nukes. And the only places we can probably do that are Eastern Europe and maybe now, scan are moving a lot of assets into Scandinavia. But, you know, the, uh, the talk when, when, when President Trump was talking about potentially pulling out of NATO, that seemed to cause some tension with the intelligence community. It wasn't because the intelligence community didn't understand the argument that President Trump was making. I mean, look, have a lot of Western European countries not done their part in NATO? Yeah. Have they freeloaded and free off American goodwill in NATO? Absolutely. freaking lutely But mm-hmm. we, need, we thought we needed to have a place to station those assets to stop that nightmare scenario of God knows how many small countries trying to grab at those nukes. And that's thinking that a, a few problem. decades down the road. Do what? That could be a real problem. Oh, yeah. Yes, sir. It could be. Yeah. So we have to plan for that. And we just wanted to keep those assets probably in place for that reason. Okay, that's that's what I think is the uh, the thought process. But here's something that's more immediate that no one – this is another connection no one's making. Again, Peter Zion's made this connection. Not too many other people have. Some of my friends in the intelligence community have discussed this over the years. So Ukraine, if you notice something, the Russians might seem like they're losing in Ukraine and not accomplishing their mission or their objectives. But here's the thing. There are some places they have been successful. They've been successful at taking out most of Ukraine's ports and import and export terminals and blowing them to hell. Okay, right. And they're doing a good job of wrecking Ukraine's agriculture industry. Now, Ukraine is one mm-hmm. of the world's biggest bread baskets. It's a top-of-the-line exporter of fertilizer products, wheat, grain, yeah. basic foodstuffs, right? Yeah, a right lot of petroleum yep. byproducts. Mm-hmm. Well, the parts of the world that are very heavily dependent on those types of exports include Turkey, parts of the Middle East, and a lot of Africa, okay? Right. Unless something changes— Continue. Remember, we put sanctions on Russia and Belarus to stop them from exporting wheat grain and fertilizer products also. Mm-hmm. So unless something changes, a lot of things could change, but unless something changes between now and the next know, four, or five, maybe six years, the cutoff of those wheat grain exports and fertilizer products you need to grow food and farm is very, very likely, almost guaranteed actually, to lead to famine, civil wars, the societal of collapse and probably parts of the Middle East and Africa. Okay. Jesus man. Last, now, what's that going to do? Think about this for okay, run this out. So the last time we had even a small version of this happen was in Syria wow. and Iraq from like 2014, 2015 and yeah. a few hundred thousand Middle Eastern refugees poured across Italy. And a lot of them actually came through the Balkans. And when I, when I was at Camp Bonsteel, um, you know, we were actually right there on one of the rat lines. Is one of the things that we were having to deal with, and so you notice that that led to a major increase in the right wing parties in Europe and Italy, Germany, Netherlands, France, the National Front, because of the fear of all these, you know, that ISIS fighters might be hiding among the refugees, which I'm sure some were. Of course. And so yeah. now run this problem out with the Ukraine in the next few years. If you have societal collapse and famine and civil war in all those African countries and parts of the Middle East. If it gets bad enough, you're looking at tens of millions of refugees from parts of the Middle East and Africa pouring into Europe either through the Balkans, across Spain, or right in through Italy and up into Central Europe. It would probably be the biggest migrant invasion since the collapse of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th century A.D., except going the other way. That would affect the whole world. In a lot of ways, yeah, definitely do a number on the Central and Western Europeans. Now, the Russians know this. Their intelligence services, when they're wrecking Ukraine's agriculture, they know exactly what they're doing. Gotcha. So, aside from the obvious problems this causes in, like, France, Spain, Italy, Germany, Netherlands, whatever, or even up to Denmark, okay? Possible civil war insurgencies, keeping in mind France is a nuclear power, so there's a strategic concern for us there. That's one possibility. The other possibility is right-wing parties come to power in Germany, Netherlands, and France. And the French right-wing party is the National Front. And let me assure you, those guys are not the kind of right-wingers we think about here in the U.S. What are we Um, thinking about over there, right-wing? Oh, you think they'll probably take the unassimilated uh, African and Arab migrants and just turn them into air pollution?
0: Oh Jesus, man! I know that Italy just so, uh,
1: went right wing, I believe. Yeah. Now I don't. It's, I don't want to sound like I'm painting with too broad a brush. There's plenty of members of their right wing parties that are, you know, not anti-NATO, not anti-American, and wouldn't would only do what was necessary to protect themselves with better border security, maybe. Sure. But now, here's the thing. Again, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but there are elements of Europe's right wing parties that are pro-Russian and pro-Putin. So in that scenario, either way, Russia wins out. They completely sever NATO in half, which they're kind of trying to do right now because Germany's kind of always been NATO's logistics hub. And you notice the Russians are cutting off all their gas exports to Germany. Yeah. But you notice they're only doing it to Germany. That's a strategic – they're not doing it to France because they know they have some assets probably in the national front and Mm – their ultimate plan is to put Germany on its knees and try to blackmail them into maybe sabotaging NATO or stopping us from functioning. And if what happens in the Ukraine continues on and nothing changes, whether the Western Europeans get overrun by tens of millions of migrants and destroyed or the right-wing parties come to power and strip off the later hosen and put the jackboots back on, if some of them are pro-Russian guys or pro-Putin assets, the russians kind of come out winning either way
0: do you think it's in russia's uh, best interest to try and wrap this up quickly or kind of let it prolong and like because they're are they playing the long game to see everything kind of move in their direction
1: oh, god it's a little hard to say because there are different ways this could go so on the one hand it might be in their interest to wreck europe as fast as possible and What I tell people is, this isn't necessarily all Putin's idea, because the way Russia's worked since the time of Catherine the Great, maybe even since Peter the Great, with the exception of when Stalin was in charge, the Russian security services run that country. Period. Full stop in the discussion. They run the country. So, the people that are really running this are guys like Nikolai Petrushev, Alexander Bortnikov, Igor Stechin, who's the head of Gazprom. God, I've heard that guy's such an asshole. The Russians, even the Russian security services, don't like to be in the same room with him. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. not an exaggeration. He's not a very nice man. <laughs> but uh, you know, Alexander Bortnikov the head of the Russian FSB. I used to keep tabs on him and Nikolai Petrushev. Petrushev was always coming into the Balkans, just trying to stir things up against us. But uh, he was—he was a cunning sob. The thing with uh, that,
0: too, with Russia is you could just be president for until you're dead, right? You can just keep those positions forever. And if you have someone running against
1: you, you just fucking kill them. Well, you can, or you can be in there as long as the security services are willing to let you stay there. Which, this gets into something else that's kind of interesting. So... You've heard about that car bomb that went off in Moscow. It supposedly yep. was gonna kill one of Putin's advisors, yeah. but you know, turned his yeah. yeah, turned his daughter into a crispy critter instead. Yeah. Yep. So <laughs> this isn't the first time that's happened. So a number of decades ago in the seventies, long story short, a communist party official named Mikhail Suslav, there's been a there's been an investigative journalist book written about this, but Apparently this guy tried to do some shady shit and start some kind of a war with the U.S. without checking with the Russian GRU or the Russian military first. And apparently old Suslov and his buddies just kind of forgot that Russian Spetsnavs were controlled by the GRU and the Russian military. So one key asset they had that the, the uh, party officials in the Kremlin didn't really have their grubby little hands on 24-7. They were a little ticked off. So they decided to teach him a lesson. And you saw a lot of car bombs going off in Eastern Europe up through about 1980. Those are Russian Spetsnaz guys killing off some of the KGB and party officials connected with Mikhail Suslav, who just kind of went underground and just decided to, you know, mind his own damn business. But Ukraine obviously has. Russians haven't had a very easy go. They've straight up lost their ass in some battles, and the Ukraine army has definitely overperformed what anybody thought. The Russians had a big weakness, and that was logistics. The bulk of the logistics the Russians were using for the army were running on a handful of rail lines. That's all they had. And rail lines are the easiest supply lines to cut. You blow up one track with a small charge, and the whole train derails, and you shut the whole thing down. That's kind of what happened. That's right. always been always been Russia's weakness. The way we solved that problem in World War II was we sent the Russians about 476,000 Studebaker trucks to use as transport because we knew how weak they were in logistics. Well, the Ukrainians got smart. They hit a lot of the places where the Russians had what logistics they did have running. The Ukrainians hit those. And of course, Russian tanks get into some cities and run out of fuel and we gave them javelin missiles, all that kind of stuff. But the Russians did not do the kind of intelligence collection and analysis that they should have done, and it was put to, it was put in charge by the or the FSB, I should say, was put in charge, and the Russian GRU probably would have done a better job, would have been a little bit better, uh, planned better, and the Russian military is not too happy about that. So what we may be seeing is the Russian security services duking it out when some really really bad shit goes wrong. Um, I'd be looking for more deaths and assassination attempts in Russia, but look at it in that light. These guys get pissed at each other. They don't hammer it out in the courts or the halls of Congress like they do here in the U.S. No, Um, they sure don't. They just, nope, they tend to get a little kaboomy and stabby. Yeah, exactly. Or poison your ass. Oh, yeah, (laughs) they do that a lot. (laughs) Yeah a lethal injection in the street just walking and prick you (laughs) yeah they do stuff like that in fact that was how they killed uh the famous umbrella gun concept where they hollowed out an umbrella and they wired it so that when you pull the trigger on the umbrella when it was closed and you put it up against someone's leg it was a little it was air pressure hypodermic needle they would punch it into their leg, and it would shoot in a platinum iridium pellet that had ricin toxin in it, which causes cardiac arrest. Fucking evil genius, man! Oh, that's how they killed. In fact, there was <laughs> a Bulgarian defector. Yeah, dude, they had. A, there's a Bulgarian defector named Georgi Markov, who was he defected? I think it was. I think it was in 1976 when he defected. He was being interviewed by the BBC. He's walking out for being interviewed, and the Russians had the Bulgarian secret service come up behind him. Pretend to bump into him, jabbed the, uh, the end of that umbrella into his leg, went and just shot that pellet in there. It, it took about three or four hours before the pellet, the, the resin around the pellet dissolved or released ricin. Normally, yeah. ricin makes your death look like cardiac arrest
0: the only way you can
1: nail it down is if you are specifically looking for ricin the only reason British uh, I'm going to say it was MI6 the only reason they figured out what had happened is because a British investigator at Scotland Yard who was really really sharp and knew a thing or two about assassination said hey run a tox screen for ricin sure enough like that it came up and they're like yep somebody dicked this guy with ricin in fact the uh one of the Damn. latest books that I wrote, the manuscript's already up at the Pentagon to be uh, reviewed and approved for publication. I hope they don't put too many redactions in it. But I actually I actually use a blueprint of the actual umbrella gun on one of the assassination hits. in that Oh, nice. You book. actually have it in there. All right. <laughs> I, I go into much more <laughs> detail about how you pull the trigger, you know, how the uh, spring and the air pressure works. So fascinating.
0: So fascinating. My uh, my worry is is with Russia that I mean, surely their their intelligence knows, like they have to know that they can't fight forever, right? They're running out of resources, uh, like like a last ditch effort. Would they drop a yeah. nuke? Would you think? Like it's Ooh. all that all the talk is in the air right now. I mean,
1: I, I don't know what to think of it. There's the scenario we're in right now. Um, you know, to be fair, yeah, there's. There's a lot of serious risk with that. Uh, one school of thought, and I think this is what they're, what probably what they're doing is, trying to use the Ukrainians as a proxy to maybe bleed the Russians to death so that they can't move further than the Ukraine, but do it in such a way by proxy so we don't have a direct confrontation. I think yeah. that might be what the DoD is trying to do, which, which you know from a certain perspective does make some sense. Now here's the danger. We cannot be a hundred percent certain just how ruthless the Russians are willing to get. We got winter coming up and yes. what they may try to do is what they've done in the past with Napoleon and the Germans. They may pull back and retrench, do as much damage as they can, scorched earth on the way out, retrench back in winter, try to build up. And then when the snow thaws and turns parts of the Ukraine into a marsh, maybe they'll try and hit something. Then. Um, Now, whether they use say tactical nuclear weapons or not, I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility that that happens. Now, I think our our people are probably hoping that that doesn't happen.
0: Who makes that decision? Is
1: is it Putin directly that makes that decision? It's supposed to be people. Well, the the Russian system is not supposed to be not totally different from Mars. I mean, just like we do, the Russians keep those. Uh, authorities and nuclear launch codes pretty close hold, and it's mm-hmm. the Russian military. If if they wanted to, could probably get those things away from the other security services. Or a crazy nutcase like Igor Sechin. and the Russian military is not stupid. They know Sechin's an asshole. He's a loose cannon. Okay. Um. So, I'm sure you know they they they, they do understand that, but since the Russians see this as a long-term existential threat that because they're declining population they've got to do this to get some security now okay they might resort to that if they got pushed hard enough or if they got desperate enough so that's the
0: thing desperation because there's also talk that putin has had cancer for quite some time so who knows how his health is you know if it's on the decline. But certainly, I mean, there's, there's got to be other people in Russia that are like, well, if we send off a fucking nuke, I still have my life and my family's life to think about. If we send off a nuke, it's, that's destruction. That's it. Game over. Everyone's fucking dead.
1: Yeah. That's, that's kind of the danger, right? So yeah, if it goes to tactical nuclear weapons, how does it escalate from there? And the thing I have sure. to caution people, and I'm saying this as a also a military historian, some of the worst, longest, most destructive wars in history, the Peloponnesian War between Athens and Sparta, uh, the First World War, those wars are not started by calculation. They're started by miscalculation. Bingo. People on yes. one or more side, yeah, they yeah. think, okay, we've got it in the bag. Well... Hindenburg and Ludendorff, from the Kaiser, thought they had it in the bag. They forgot about this invention called the telephone, and of course, everything went downhill from there. But uh, I mean, it's yeah, it, it it is a possibility. Anybody who's not somewhat concerned about this isn't playing with a full deck. Yeah, it's uh.
0: It's it's crazy to think about. Do you ever have like these uh like this dystopia kind of fantasy? I, I I don't know if you call it a fantasy, but like looking off into the distance and just seeing like a nuclear like a mushroom cloud. It's like what the fuck would happen if we just saw a mushroom cloud right now? You ever had that fantasy before? It's
1: cross. Just like the while you're driving or goes. looking
0: out the window or
1: something. It's uh it has invaded my thoughts from time to time since I uh, temporarily left the intelligence community. Um, I obviously don't have access to uh, you know places I can go and you know until I get reemployed. But it, it is something I have thought about, um, and I, fortunately, I'm in a I'm not in a position where I can uh, see it coming or do anything about it. At least not right now. But right. I. Yeah, because I'm a Gen Xer, you know, I'm a child of the 80s and early 90s. I do remember growing up in those hot and heavy years of the Cold War in the early 80s when we really, really thought we were going to have a yeah. third World War with Russia, either conventional or nuclear. I remember the nuclear scare over Berlin, the downing of the Korean Airlines flight in 83, Ronald Reagan's Star Wars speech. Uh Oof. I remember how close we came to nuclear war and having to digest that as a young man. I live we you know, my generation, we got along and lived under the threat or at least the prospect of being threatened with nuclear annihilation. And you know, some of the when I was over in Kosovo, you know, we have a lot of uh members of the younger generation coming in now. They're just now in the military, haven't even, you know, deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan yet, and I tell us, say, guys. This is just stuff you need to take seriously, because like I said, I can tell you right now, living under the threat of nuclear annihilation is not a lot of fun.
0: Right. What would that look like? What would a nuclear fallout look like? I don't think people put
1: it into perspective of like what it actually means. So it would depend. Let's say it let's say it did escalate to Let's. Nuclear weapons and, and some kind of strategic nuclear exchange. It, it, it doesn't always have to be all out. There's a lot of ways it can go. It can start out in Ukraine, escalate to Europe. Maybe we come to the negotiating table. Who the hell knows? Or we retaliate and they retaliate. Now, if, it's a, if you're talking about like a first strike scenario, um, the Russians have much more limited nuclear options than they did during the Cold War. They just had massive numbers of warheads. And we have some missile defenses up like the THAAD system that can knock some of those things down. But they would want to probably concentrate where they could do the most damage to make it harder for us to strike back, which are not going to be able to stop us from striking back. We still got our nuclear submarines. That's why we have three legs of the nuclear triad. They can't take them out. But hypothetically, yeah, man, I forgot about uh, those things. <laughs> yeah, we got a ton <laughs> of those. We actually got a lot more of those than the Russians those. do now. You yeah. Know? So you can take, yeah. even if you did take NORAD and Washington, D.C. and the bomber bases without us getting the bombers in the air, which you wouldn't, we get plenty of them in the air. Those uh, Ohio-class ballistic missile submarines, we got a lot more of that firepower than the Russians <laughs> do. And let me show you, those things don't miss. <laughs> Just blew my mind, cool. man. Yeah, <laughs> I can't Center believe for I forgot about, about, about that submarines. shit. <laughs> but let's just say that they did go, what what they might do is go for a what we call a command and control decapitation strike. So they would want to hit major command centers where decision makers are. That's going to be Washington, D.C. and the White House where the National Command Authority and the National Military Command Center is. That's basically underneath the Pentagon. They'd want to take that out, and they'd also want to take out if not our early warning sites, they'd want to take out NORAD in Cheyenne Mountain, Colorado, and then they'd probably want to take out, uh, oh, God, was it uh, Tinker Air Force Base, and then maybe Dias Air Force Base in Texas, Whiteman um, Air Force Base, and the Dakotas and Barksdale Air Force Base, our strategic air bases. If they were going to go I'm for a trying decap- to paralyze us. Yeah. That, if they were going to go for a decapitation strike... That's what they would throw all their nukes into doing is hitting those facilities. Now, they shoot their missiles over the poles. Well, I mean, our satellites are going to photograph it. Even if you take out the White House, NORAD going to be around for a couple more minutes. It don't take but five to ten seconds to transmit those codes and commands out. Then you got all the land-based silos. you got to try to hit those, too. Um, but if it was just a command and control strike to take out our ability to do command and control, those are probably the places they would try to hit first. Now, the intelligence community, um, a lot of my you know friends and colleagues that work there, I they, they, they've long since anticipated this. And I'm sure they've got contingency plans to deal just with that. So let's say the Russians do that. And, okay, we retaliate. Maybe they decide we inflicted more damage on them. They want to inflict more. and this time they retaliate and they go for knocking out infrastructure, maybe detonating their nukes in the upper atmosphere, letting the EM pulse shatter everything. That's a possibility. Knock us part of us back to the stone age. So (laughs) it's a. Seriously. That's what would happen. I know. Yeah. And so it's a lot of. A lot of different scenarios. I mean. The optimum thing would be, if they went to tactical nukes, would be to somehow retaliate with small nukes without pressing them too hard in a way that makes them realize we're serious and maybe gets them to the negotiating table. But even that— What would a, nu- what would a nuclear
0: strike do to Ukraine? Like what, what would happen uh, well, if they just they shot off a nuke and it
1: hit Ukraine? Yeah, well, what would happen? It, it would It would depend on—well, it would depend on what kind of nuclear weapon was used, what's the yield— what kind of delivery system was it? Where was it detonated? If you're talking about, let's say a, uh, oh, the Russian, right? Well, I can't, I can't go into any detail on what I know about their weapons. It's all classified. But in general, let's just say, let's just say they detonated a 500 kiloton nuke over Kiev or Kiev, as the Ukrainians call it. That's a few. It's like 10, 15 times more powerful than Hiroshima. Airburst detonation that big would do a number on the city. It would maximize the amount of uh, uh, catastrophic heat damage, would smash a lot of buildings, it, it would devastate the city. I mean, it would be really, really bad. And the initial wave of casualties probably be well in the hundreds of thousands instantaneously dead. After that, you probably got maybe a million people burned, blind. Dying of radiation sickness, uh, would pretty much probably overwhelm whatever medical resources they have out there. That's one way. Or if it was if it was the Russian military that was in charge of planning the strike, they'd be probably less likely to plan a strike on Kiev than they would Ukrainian army units. They'd most likely go for Ukrainian army units where they can hit them out away from a civilian population but do the most mm. military damage that would minimize damage to their forces on the ground. Gotcha. That could be that could come down to as if the Russian intelligence services like the FSB that want to plan the strike or the Russian military cuz they get two totally different things depending on who's actually calling the shots.
0: That's uh that's heavy, huh? Because I like would there, there would have to be a counter if that if that were to happen, you'd think.
1: Now there would be. It would just depend on what the counter is. Now the Ukrainians, you know, well they they used actually did used to have nukes, and they uh, we we talked them into giving them up in the nineties just because they couldn't secure them, and we wanted to get those things away where they couldn't be secured because we didn't want terrorists going in there and paying off some Ukrainian general walking out, you know, with a you know, two hundred kiloton nuclear warhead. But it could be, it would it would depend on a lot of things. Don't look for the Europeans to do any serious retaliation no matter how much trash they want to talk. Um if there were to be a tactical nuclear retaliation against the Russians in Ukraine, it would probably have to be carried out by the US and Britain. So where does China stand on this then? <laughs> you know? Well here's a funny thing at first, the Chinese were kind of, you know, clapping for the Russians. Then the Chinese really—the Chinese have tremendous problems with food security. Um, over a decade ago, there were swaths of China's population that had turned to cannibalism. I heard about that. You know, I, I did hear about that. that, yeah. A lot of folks don't know that. So the Chinese, they've got a one, like a 1.2 billion population, but here's the thing. 600 million of their people— Twice the population of the U.S. are living in sub-Saharan poverty still. Good Lord, man. Holy shit. So, the Chinese can't feed barely even half their population. And one place where they did get reliable fertilizer imports and wheat and grain was Ukraine. Oh, so, wow. if you notice, when, the, when the, China, the Chinese thought the Russians were going to be super smart and precise in what they did, yeah, No. Uh, the Russians just went ahead and wrecked as much of the Ukraine agriculture as they could. And the Chinese were like, oh, shit. Uh yeah. why were we going to replace that? They complained <laughs> to the Russians. The Russians were like, oh, why are you complaining, Mr. Smart Person? That is your problem. <laughs> so they kind of got the cold. So Russians didn't really give a shit about them anyway. But... that's gonna that's causing some issues in china already um chinese have they've got all kind of issues um that they're not near as strong and secure as people think they are Uh, a lot of the indicators we've seen all the good quote unquote good data talking about china the american business community put out a lot of pro-chinese disinformation because they just like putting factories in china because of all the slave labor they got now of course You know, what goes around comes around, you know, like Confucius may say, and I'm paraphrasing here, karma's a real bitch. Mm -hmm. Um, Right around 2014, 2015, a lot of Western companies started leaving China, because what would happen is Chinese Communist Party bosses were literally raiding the bank accounts of all these U.S., Canadian, and European firms. And when those American executives would be like, hey, you can't do this, I'm going to sue, Chinese were like... Who are you going to sue? There's no court system here, dumbass. This isn't right. the U.S., <laughs> Europe, or Canada. There's no independent court system here. There's just the Communist Party right. bosses and President G. Oh, you want to just They're going to sue us. I, <laughs> I mean, they were like, the stupidity... The one thing that has never ceased to amaze me is the short-sightedness and stupidity of Western business executives and what they were willing to believe about China. Mm-hmm. So, that starts happening. And... China had a major problem with energy prices. It's gotten to the point now where energy costs in China were getting so high around 2015-2016 that the cost of skilled labor in Mexico, Thailand, and Vietnam was a little bit less than the cost of the slave labor in China. A lot of people never caught that. But some companies moved to Vietnam, Thailand, and a lot of smart ones moved to Mexico. Then in 2016, guess who wins the election? President Trump so uh, gotcha. he puts a guy he puts a guy in charge of uh federal trade office named robert lightheiser peter zihon has some excellent analysis and stories about robert lightheiser but lightheiser really starts to turn the screws on the chinese big time and making it a lot harder for him and so the chinese the chinese debt to gdp ratio is like 5000 percent higher than ours people don't realize this China is the most indebted nation in human history, dwarfing even the United States right now. A lot of people no don't shit. know that. No, you don't yeah, hear that. You just hear about the American debt. Their financial system is not sustainable as it currently is. And they, uh, President Xi has you know gotten a lot of power concentrated in his hands for a number of various reasons. To give you an idea, people think the Chinese are smart. They did so, people thought, oh, they did such a good job on COVID. Well, yeah, their lockdowns were so effective. They kept their cities shut down for so long that Western companies lost billions. They tried to restart their factories, then the Chinese came and shut them down again. And about every company besides Apple starts popping smoke and trying to come back into the U.S. And so Apple realized they were the most overexposed company on the planet. Like, oh shit, these lockdowns are ending. Yeah, the Chinese yeah. lockdowns were kind of effective, but they never developed any natural or hybrid immunity either. And, of course, you know, their Chinese vaccine isn't worth a shit. I mean, that thing would probably kill you anyway. But <laughs> they, uh, they have a lot of problems. In fact, I mean, you've got – there's videotapes I saw again. Peter Zaihan brought this up. I checked this out. It's true. There are pictures of Chinese functionaries going out and trying to disinfect airport runways from COVID. 'Cause they have no freaking idea what they're doing. In fact, after what? COVID, China was China was China to this day is going through massive rolling blackouts that are enforced by their own army. And apparently this was going on for like a year before someone even told the Chinese president. So it's like, how good a shape are they really? Now, here here's where the US can really, really do a number on China. In my uh my uh, military sci-fi thriller, The Time Killers, I actually bring this I actually bring this scenario up. So China has to import a lot of raw materials to export the finished junk that everybody buys, sure. right? Yeah. So yeah. one of the most basic industrial inputs, especially since they make so much plastic, is oil. I think like 80% of the oil they import for that comes in from the Persian Gulf over 6,000 miles away. And according to analysis done by U.S. Army Pacific and Peter Zaihan, Chinese vessels are mostly diesel-powered. They sail about a 1,000 miles and they run out of gas. And yet it's about 6,000 miles to the Persian Gulf. Do you see the problem here? Yeah. So they can't secure it. The U.S. has been securing China's energy imports since the 1970s when Richard Nixon made that deal to bring China on our side against the Soviets, and we've continued to protect all their oil and gas shipments coming out of the Middle East, except it's starting to go away now. But I digress. So, there is that. We, If we embargoed and just sunk got a little bit away from the Persian Gulf, we could sink every single Chinese flag, oil and gas tanker, and blockade it. There's not a damn thing they could do about it. The other place where China is vulnerable is look at geographically. If you look at geographically, with the exception of North Korea, China is ringed by U.S. allies. India, Thailand, Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, Australia, South Korea, Taiwan, Taiwan, Japan, okay? Yeah. So, and there in the South China Sea, you've got the most vital seaway, sea lane in the world called the Straits of Malacca. Almost all the trade that China relies on to import raw materials and export finished products a disproportionate chunk of it goes through the Straits of Malacca. Now, if you look at the Straits of Malacca, it's an island archipelago. If you put on your Army or Marine Corps infantryman's thinking cap, it's nothing but choke points, okay? Sure. Now, if you notice, the U.S. Marine Corps, in preparing to fight China, we haven't come out and said this, but we know it's what they're doing, they've gotten rid of their tanks and artillery units, and they're replacing them with Marine Corps infantry and artillery units that are trained not to use artillery and tanks, but anti-ship missiles with ranges of about a 1,000 miles. Makes sense. Now, why would the Marine Corps be breaking their battalions down into smaller elements to run anti-ship missiles unless you're planning on dropping them on small island archipelagos to sever China's shipping Audrey, You cut off and seal off the Straits of Malacca, and China has to come and— Yeah, they try to push us off the Straits of Malacca. It'll be pure hell for them to do it. You cut that off, and you basically just constricted their primary carotid artery. If you can maintain the blockade in the Straits of Malacca and cut off their oil and gas imports coming out of the Persian Gulf, they die, period. They're already in trouble. Yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. That's interesting. And, and, And with energy prices going haywire in China right now, if we did that, Oh, oh boy, would things get interesting. Now, I'm sure a question some of your listeners have is okay, what about China taking Taiwan? Well, oh good. Well, yep. here's some things to consider. So the question is, will they do it? A few years ago I would have said no, but China's getting desperate. They kind of need a propaganda victory. And the thing about the Chinese is they have a historical tradition of shooting the messenger. That's where the term comes from. It was always the Chinese that do that. So if you're a Communist Party official, you don't want to go tell the Chinese president that he's doing something stupid or that something's fucked up because, you know, you just get a bullet in the head. So might as well just bullshit the guy, right? Well, (laughs) it sounds kind of crazy, but that's that's the kind of stuff that happens. Well, let's say the Chinese make a go for Taiwan. And they they probably, Taiwan's had decades to prepare, but they've never been under U.S. military protection. So if you're the Taiwanese and for decades, you're threatened by China and you know you can't count on the U.S., how likely are you to try to covertly develop a nuclear weapons program? Jesus. I I thought they would just give up.
0: Just give it it up to them.
1: (laughs) It may not go that easy. So (laughs) let's say... Let's say the Chinese go for Taiwan. Uh-huh. No way can we be 100% sure that Taiwan, which for decades has been one of the most technologically advanced countries on the planet, although they're small. Sure. can we be 100% sure they don't have three or four nukes stashed somewhere? I don't know. Absolutely not.
0: It's now probably likely, say, it,
1: right? oh, likely. Very likely. Now, let's say the Chinese hit Taiwanese nuke. Well, it doesn't turn out well for China. Now, let's just say that they don't have nukes and that China hits them hard and fast and they take them, which they probably could.
0: Gotcha. The
1: second, I mean, the second, the first Chinese amphibious troops boots hit those beaches in Taiwan. You can probably, what what I'm about to suggest here, you can probably, you know, take it to the bank and draw interest. First Chinese boots hit the deck in Taiwan. And South Korea and Japan are probably going to build nuclear weapons in the course of a long weekend and point them right at Beijing. No shit. What kind of problem do you think that's going to create for the Chinese?
0: Wow. So, you they would have to be contemplating this, right? They'd have to be thinking about this. Like, if we if we put boots in Taiwan, like then the next move would be that. South Korea and Japan are going to be pointing nukes at us.
1: Oh, I'm sure their, I'm sure their intelligence people have thought of this. I mean, they Let me assure you, they're not stupid. Um, I've seen enough of them in action to know they're a lot of things, but complete morons they're not. Uh, <laughs> but the way China's command structure works, it's so centralized with President Xi. There's no real checks and balances on a potentially bad course of action and since no one peter zihon's stories about this are just hilarious the way he tells them it's just really entertaining but we when i was in us army pacific we had to periodically watch china the chinese have always had a problem with the government officials who run the intelligence services or different districts in china they always go out of their way not to you know challenge the orders or views of whoever their supreme leader is, and they have a tradition of shooting the messenger, so they usually just don't challenge what they're doing. They'll just say, Oh, yes, sir, yes, sir, whatever you want, sir. And even if their Intel people have thought about this, which I would bet, you know, a fortune they have If you have a system where nobody wants to tell the guy at the top the honest-to-God truth and what the risks are and all they do is salute and say, yes, sir, and he says go, it's going to happen.
0: Is there any – what do they call it? The hermit country, North Korea? Any worry about that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, those guys. Um, Yeah, those guys over there. Well, I don't. I don't mean to, uh, you know, make light of it. Uh, there, there's some funny stories about Kim Jong Un that are just like. Apparently he, yeah. Apparently he went to school in uh, Switzerland. The Swiss say I mean, he's not crazy. Oh, I saw that. Obviously. He played basketball and shit. I saw that. <laughs> yeah, he sucked at playing basketball. Even though the guy has a thing <laughs> for Dennis Rodman, I mean, you can't make. That <laughs> yeah. <stuff> yeah. <laughs> up. I. I That's just comical. Um. So weird. But. uh He's he's not a complete nutcase like his daddy was. His daddy was crazier than a shithouse rat on PCP, no doubt about it. Jesus, but pretty, Kim Jong Un spent a lot of oh yeah, Kim Jong Un spent a lot of time in the West and in Switzerland. I mean he's he's okay. well aware of what the he's very well aware, I should say, of what the United States could do to him in North Korea if we really wanted to. He does not have any illusions about that. And contrary to what people think, he does not like the Chinese. He really he does, does. not like the Chinese. No. Well, the Chinese have always treated them like they're the redhead stepchildren, their little bitch boy. You know, they come in, they don't even sit down with them equally. They sit on a higher table and just, you know, oh, you better do what we tell you to, you wayward little country. You're just so backwards. You don't know true communism and all the North Koreans can kind of do is just sit there with a the double dumb face and not say anything because really what wow. are they gonna do you know China just cuts off their food and puts them in one hell of a jam so yeah I don't know um I mean if we I was just curious it, because it's like if if something like that
0: happens then you see Kim jong-un like look what I can do look what I can do and try and like show his importance to China or whatever do some dumb shit just trying to like
1: ego flex or something and be like look how i can contribute well he gave the impression that he was trying to do that when trump was president and then trump just kind of had a conniption fit and lost his shit and all of a sudden (laughs) u.s military assets are moving in all around north korea and the chinese because they're not stupid don't want any more U.S. military assets in the Pacific that are necessary, and because of Kim Jong-un's behavior, we move more stuff in. The Chinese got really, really pissed off I and see. more or less just mushroom-stamped Kim Jong-un and basically said, you know, look, you little brat, you just better not do that again. And Kim Jong-un was like, oh, man, I'm in trouble, oh, shit. <laughs> and, uh, Can I see Dennis? You notice, Can you bring Dennis yeah, over? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he, he kind of, he kind of quieted down after that. I mean, he's, you know, he wasn't raised with just North Korean propaganda like his, you know, stupid father was. Kim Jong Un, he was yeah. raised in Switzerland. He studied about the U.S. He is aware of how the world works, and he has no illusions that if the United States wanted to. We could, if we were willing to use tactical news, we could flatten that country in about 30 minutes flat if we really wanted to. Kind of wouldn't mind seeing that. (laughs) It would, it would, if if we decided to do it, it it could be done pretty quick.
0: Talk to me about UFOs, man. Let's talk about some UFOs.
1: okay. Okay. So let me approach this from a, an intelligence community perspective yeah i don't even know how to so, approach it. So it's probably best that you do that <laughs> so i kind of give the uh, y'all you know, our our quote-unquote community's perspective maybe why we did the things that we did so numerous government officials over the last few years have publicly acknowledged that UFOs may be and when they talk about UFOs being a national security threat, there's different types of UFOs. So it it runs the gamut of a wide range of categories. What they're talking about are the extremely mind blowing exotic UFOs that engage in maneuvers that just com- seem to completely defy the yeah. laws of physics. You know, transmedium right. travel, coming in from outer space, Mach twenty through the atmosphere come to a dead stop, tracked on radar, dive into the water, go supersonic, then pop up and go back into space, that kind of stuff. Those crazy. are crazy ones we can't explain. Yeah. Most of those are, have been, ever since the 50s, most of those have been clustered around military nuclear facilities, and that's been publicly acknowledged. That's why I can talk about this now. It's been publicly acknowledged by Marco Rubio, Tim Perchette. Uh, I think even Congressman Adam Schiff has you know, talked about this in hearings, wanting to know how much of a threat they might be. You said the 50s. When did Roswell take place? Was that around the 40s or 50s? That was in July 1947. Now, here's the interesting thing. In 1947, Roswell Army Airfield was where the 509th Bomb Group was headquartered. They were the only nuclear bomb-capable squadron we have. They were the ones that delivered the bomb to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Right? And— we found massive amounts of these different types of UFOs every time there was a nuclear detonation, anytime we ran a nuclear test. Um, the military poo pooed it, but they had all kinds of units that were looking at these things. So people ask okay, the 40s and 50s, why do we exert so much effort to cover that up and hide it from the American people? Was that because we were a bunch of, you know, uh, you know, assholes like some of the guys you saw with the cigarette smoking man on X-Files? No, there were some good reasons, okay? You no, know, one, when you're in intelligence, the way you first identify a threat and defeat a threat or identify your enemy and defeat your enemy, you do it by ascertaining and knowing his intent before anything else. That's the first thing you look for, right? Mm-hmm. So let's say, you know, you've got country A. And right next to country A is country B that has comparable military strength and comparable economic strength, comparable weapons technology. But country B wants to trade with, com- with country A and have a friendship, be friends, best buds, whatever. But they have a powerful sure. military, too. Then you've got a smaller country near country A, country C, that's full of a bunch of crazy people that want to blow up your citizens, you know, shoot them on the border, whatever. But they're very militarily weak. Who's the threat? It's country C. The difference is intent. Okay. Gotcha. So that's the first thing you look for in intelligence when you want to, the purpose of intelligence is ultimately to inform commanders and inform policymakers. Okay. Mm -hmm. Your first step is ascertaining intent, right? So with UFOs, we knew a lot about these things. They had maneuver capabilities that were probably centuries ahead of what we had. They seemed to be able to come out of nowhere. We couldn't stop them. Our air defense systems, in most cases, were not able to shoot them down. And they seemed to be able to come and go at will, right? And are these reconnaissance flights of a sort? Well, we don't know. And you say, okay, the first thing we want to ascertain is what is their intent? That would have been the first thing that President Eisenhower asked his military staff. And if you go on to YouTube and watch interviews with uh, a now dead Army colonel named Philip Corso, who wrote wrote a book called The Day After Roswell, which I highly recommend. Um, Yeah. A lot of good information in there. But ask them, okay, what do they want? What is their intent? They said, well, Ike, we don't know. Okay, so. If you're trying to ascertain intent, but you can't, you don't know, but you know that these things exhibit what seems to be vastly superior technology, the conclusion you come to is, okay, I don't know if they're intents hostile. I don't know if they're a threat, but they could be. If Would you say were that to not knowing them, intent
0: is more dangerous than knowing the intent?
1: It depends. It depends on what course of action it leads you to take. If it leads you to take more intelligence collection, maybe not. But in our case, it's you kind of argue it either way. So we can't ascertain intent. But if we know they have superior technological capabilities, then we have to plan for them becoming yeah. hostile as if it is an sure. absolute certainty. And if we in the intelligence community and in the Department of Defense and the defense industry don't take steps to do that, then we are derelict in our duties, period, full yeah. stop.
0: That answers my so, question
1: because like, if you don't
0: know their intent, you kind of take your, your foot off the pedal of the gas because you don't yeah. know their intent for a second, and then they just come and you know wipe you out.
1: Yeah. And so that was the challenge the U.S. intelligence community faced. Now – they ask, why would you hide this from the American people? Well, this is where you got to kind of put on your historian's ball cap. I mean, we want to understand something in history. You've got to look at it in the context in which it happened to understand it. Not to justify it, but just to understand it. So we come out of World War II, and the heads of military intelligence, Hoyt Vandenberg, Walter Bedell Smith, Arthur Trudeau, General Nathan Twining, and J. Edgar Hoover, the head of the FBI, The one thing they were all sure about is Russian intelligence had penetrated our government at all levels, mostly outside the military, State Department included, up to about one or two levels below President Truman, okay? By 1947, we knew that was the case. So imagine you're Arthur Trudeau, Hoyt Vandenberg, or General Nathan Twining, and something or two things come down the desert at Roswell, okay? Yeah, You see a crash the retrieval Russians. site down there, and you go, oh, shit, this isn't Russian. What the hell is this? Oh, crap, this might be alien. Maybe hundreds, thousands of years ahead of us. And you say, okay, we can't let the Russians get it. They can't know about it. So what do you have to do? You have to take drastic steps to hide it from people in your own government because you know your whole government is penetrated top to bottom by the Russian KGB. Right. Oh, Jesus, that's right. Remember, the, yeah. the Russian remember the russian gru had penetrated the manhattan project they were the ones who did that so they know that they know what the threat is so these military leaders with j edgar hoover's help because j edgar hoover had dirt on everybody he was the actual screening force for this effort he was the only guy who could blackmail someone worse than the russians gotta love that so um they do this they keep it hidden now What was one of the reasons that may have motivated them to take additional steps? We have to look at it in the cultural context. So think back to all those cheesy black and white movies that were popular in the 40s, 50s, and early 60s, right? Every movie was like a Disney fairy tale. Every war movie didn't have a single piece of blood in it, a single bit of violence, or even a single cuss word or any sex, nothing. Even war movies were like fairy tales. Okay? Right. Because the audience wouldn't tolerate anything else. And then if you look at movies and TV shows, anytime they showed a husband and wife's bedroom, they're always in separate beds. Yes. (laughs) Because they did not think that they knew the audience would not be able to tolerate the suggestion that a husband and wife slept together and had sex, right? Now, aside from the silliness of that, if you're in the intelligence community, okay? You have this information, and you see that the American people cannot handle something as factual and simple as the fact that a husband and wife sleep in the same bed. Mm. It's perfectly logical to think, if I tell them we're not alone in the universe, that there are aliens out there, that they can screw with our military bases, dick with our nuclear missile silos, and there's not a whole hell of a lot we can do about it. People's heads will explode. What happened? Exactly. so. You do have to put yourself in the shoes of those people in the intelligence community and the military who, if they release that information, they're the ones directly responsible for the fallout. And if you release that information, yeah. the Russians are going to try to grab one of those things, and you don't want, you don't want those bastards getting a hold of that kind of technology. No. So they, no. they had good reasons for doing those unpopular steps that they took. I appreciate um, it. Yeah, I understand so it. I mean it's it's good that you do because it's you know, a lot of people just don't stop and think about that. Now what I did see happening in the intelligence community before I left a few months ago, a lot of highly classified information related to UFOs that was compartmented in, you know, various black programs. A lot of that stuff was being downgraded and pushed down to the top secret level where people like me could look at it. And I saw a lot of stuff that I'll probably have to take to the grave with me. I can't discuss right now. All I can say is, wow. But a lot (laughs) of other other bits of information about that topic in the next few years probably are going to be declassified and pushed out to the public. And that is something to pay attention to and scrutinize because it'll give you a window into why certain policy decisions are actually being made. Wow, Jesus, man! So they're here. Well, I can say they it is real. They, whatever they are, they've been coming here since at least 1945. Um, there well, there was people... depictions back in like the um way back when with like uh with
0: pyramids. There was um depictions mm-hmm. and pyramids of you know ufos hovering above the pyramids like there's writings throughout history about this shit
1: yes and so it's they have been here for a long time and as far as the united states is concerned when there's an explosion in those sightings it seems to happen after we split the atom at trinity that if you look at it from an intelligence just a broad data analysis standpoint it Can you goes explain that? Overdrive. I don't know what that is. What? Okay. The Trinity. Oh, Trinity was the name of the test site where we tested the first atomic bomb. Gotcha. Okay. The Manhattan Project. That was, that was where we tested the, We tested it to see if it would work. And we said, oh, holy crap. Hey, let's go drop on the Japanese now. So, <laughs> it if you do it from a raw data analysis standpoint, if you're putting together some kind of a uh, a line chart, You're tracking UFO sightings for the last few hundred years. We split the atom at Trinity and then the activity takes off. That That data analysis is open source now and has been done. So we have to consider when we detonate nuclear weapons above a certain yield, are we possibly advertising our existence to other civilizations out there? And if we do that, might we one day catch the attention of one that's perhaps not so friendly? Interesting. And that could it also be that they don't
0: want us to blow ourselves up so they can intercept it if they see us using a nuke on,
1: you know, other countries? I suppose that's possible. Um, a lot, a lot of people have uh, have considered that, although. Colonel Phil Corso makes it clear in his book that after some incidents that happened in 1983, that he thought their intent was overtly hostile. Now, he thought they were trying to actually provoke a nuclear war. That was his interpretation of it. Oh, wow. Um, in In 1983, Colonel Corso had actually retired from the Army and been working for Senator Kennedy and Senator Strom Thurmond. Uh, but he's rumored to have had a conversation with President Reagan before he announced the Star Wars defense. A lot of really interesting stuff has come out about that. So his, his book, The Day After Roswell, is definitely something you'll want to read.
0: Yeah, I'm going to get on that. I'm so fascinated by this topic. So there's there's all that. And then...
1: Uh, Who's the gentleman
0: else? that uh, worked... For the uh the military, I think, and it was he um he said he saw the UFO and he was like working in these mountains, I guess. The hell's his name? I forgot it.
1: Uh, was it was it a guy that worked for Lockheed? No. Don Phillips.
0: Wasn't no, it wasn't him. He like he was on the Joe Rogan podcast too. He's like a really big name in the UFO uh community. I Bob Lazar? Guess. That's the one. Yeah, Bob, Bob yeah. Lazar. Lazar. Yes. Yeah. 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 What is your uh what's your take on him?
1: I'm not a hundred percent sure, but he talked about things like element one fifteen back in like nineteen eighty nine. Mm-hmm. And it just so turns out that element one fifteen does actually exist in our universe. So crazy. That does give him some credibility. And I don't think I could just be dismissive of the guy. I mean, he he did work, I want to believe, I think it was at Los Alamos National Lab. I think I think that has been confirmed. Um gosh, I, I'm not a hundred percent sure about the guy, but the stuff he said about Element 115 that people thought was BS back in, you know, 1989, 1990, turns out Element 115, a number of years ago, we figured out can be made and does exist in our universe. So I don't think we can just be dismissive of the guy. We probably got to at least consider the fact that he might have been telling the truth. Sure. Do you Do you consider the facts of
0: people that have been abducted as well? I mean— so many people have. It's hard to tell who's telling the truth and who's not. Who wants the spotlight or who's like being honest? And it's too hard. People are complex, like we said at the very beginning of this
1: podcast. Sure. So the the UFO topic and UFO community in general is a complex thing, right? It's very complex, very nuanced. Um, there are a lot of charlatans in the UFO community. You know, make no mistake about it. Sure. Um, some of these guys are obviously charlatans. I mean, you get know, a lot of these people, they've never worked in the intelligence community or military intelligence. They've never held a security clearance. They really don't know that much. But at the same time, there are credible sources that have come forward, like Colonel Phil Corso, like Richard Doty. And there are still a handful of researchers here and there that just looked at the UFO topic from just straight technological research, like Nick Cook. That have actually done some good, compelling research that is worth reading.
0: Knowing what you know now, do you. What do you believe about the UFOs? Like, do they live in our ocean? Are they from a different dimension, a different galaxy?
1: I honestly can't talk too much about what I believe on it. Um, This is one of those, this is where I gotta start tap dancing a little bit because I. There's certain things that I'm just sworn to secrecy on. Gotcha. Little bits of information, things that I've seen here and there that are still classified that I just can't ever talk about. Taking it to the grave. As of right now, yes, that's the uh, <laughs> that's the uh, that's the deal. There are some things that when you're given access to secrets and you sign that non-disclosure agreement with Uncle Sam, sure. you got to abide yep. by it. Let's just say nothing is impossible. <laughs> nope. <laughs> a
0: lot of things are possible. <laughs> uh, well, Matt, let's uh, let's go ahead and wrap it up. I appreciate you for doing this, man. That was uh, a lot of information there. You know your shit, my man. Thank you for are joining Do you mind if I uh, tell you and your readers about a couple of my books real quick? Hell yeah, man. Go ahead. I always okay. give uh, my Don't speakers the last minute here. I'll, <laughs> I'll,
1: I'll be quick, so... <laughs> Sure. The uh, first book I've got, it's actually uh, free right now on Kindle and Kindle Unlimited on Amazon. It'll only be free till about Sunday. But it's called In the Death of Night 2.0, find it on Amazon. And it's about a retired CIA case officer running his own private security firm in Houston, Texas, called Mercury Securities. And what he does is his firm has a contract to do what we call technical surveillance countermeasures work, or bug sweeping for all the federal and state and local law enforcement agencies in and around Houston. And he's supposed to be sweeping for listing devices, keystroke monitors, that sort of thing, and instead of sweeping for them, he has his technicians plant the very devices they're supposed to be trying to pick out and catch. So he knows everything the FBI, ICE, ATF, and, you know, uh, uh, Border Patrol and HPD and Harris County Sheriff's Office are doing. So he takes that information. He goes to a, the deputy head of a major Russian organized crime group, crime group, excuse me, that has moved into Houston, and he says, "Look, I'll make you a deal. You can't refuse. I can tell you if, when, how, why, and where the cops and the feds are going to move on you, way in advance, help you smoke out their informants, avoid their opera, avoid their, you know, uh, arrest operations and raids. In exchange for that, I have all this surveillance data on known or suspected foreign terrorists." That are in the Houston area to target our oil and gas refining infrastructure in the event of a war. And he says, All you gotta do to get me to keep the information on the cops and the feds coming is have your ex GRU, Stasi enforcers, and paid hitmen and mercenaries butcher these guys like hogs. I want it nice and bloody. And then he says, There's some US citizens I'm gonna want killed. And he says, I'll give you the money to hire some mercenaries to kill them. Wash it through your laundry, rags, and then you hire, say, former Rhodesian or white South African mercenaries who were, at one point in time, some of the best operators on the planet. And their their files won't be available to the FBI or the U.S. DOD because those Dutchmen in South Africa have long memories about, you know, sanctions and whatnot. So... And he says, you just do that, and I keep the information when the cops and the feds come or whatever it costs you to kill these guys, to kill these terrorists. I spot you for in cold, hard cash from an offshore bank account. You won't lose a dime. What do you say? And Mikhail Vladimirov, the ex-KGB officer, who's a deputy head of their operations in Houston, says, duh, okay, we'll do it. And then, of course, that starts the bloodbath, and the book is just nonstop action and tradecraft there's one scene where a Russian and a German hitman grab a, uh, a terrorist. I want to say he's from Saudi Arabia. They freeze his head with liquid nitrogen and then shatter it like glass and just leave him in the parking <laughs> <a> lot. <They laughs> do Holy Stuff shit. like that. And then I got a short story collection called The Jackals of Babylon 2020. It's got everything from uh, stories of a uh, hitman named Scott Rains, who's actually based on a couple of real life uh former Marines in Houston who were hit man, Riley Jenkins and Jimmy O'Banion, two ruthless guys. And there's also one in there about a call girl who uh, kills a guy by, you know, cutting him like a pig. And then Ooh. I got a uh, military sci-fi novel, I think I mentioned, and it was called The Time Killers. And yep. basically it's about the aftermath of a war between the U.S. and China. It gets really bad, a new virus is released, kills millions of people. And a group of soldiers and scientists working on some deep black programs in Kirtland Air Force Base. They have an alien spacecraft they reverse engineer with a live alien. They basically figure out how to go back in time. And they're all Gen Xers like myself who grew up in the 80s and 90s, served in the military, went on to work in the intelligence community. They decide to use what they know to go back in time to open up a portal and they go back to Houston, Texas in the late 80s, early 90s to set up operations because when the war between the u.s and china is over in the book they identify four people who are responsible for the war's aftermath being so bad for the u.s two chinese spies and two u.s turncoats and the only time all four of them were together in one spot was in houston texas in 1990 so they all go back to the late 80s early 90s are all gen xers who actually grew up in those areas in their childhoods. it's a little bit like the show stranger things They're going Mm -hmm. back to the music, fashion, and culture of the late 80s and early 90s, which the reader gets to see, but they're just seeing it through the eyes of Gen Xers, who, like me and a lot of other folks I served with, you know, served in the military post 9 11, you know, cut their teeth in the war on terror, and went on to work in the intelligence community a number of assignments. And now they're going back in time to basically stop this war from happening. And it's a. It's not that long of a book. It's got some pretty graphic sex scenes in it. where the call girl Christina Blackwood plays a role in the twist ending, no one sees coming. Which I set it up for a sequel. And so, oh. those are the you know kind of those are most of the the majority of the books that I've uh, got out now. And if any of your you know uh, listeners, viewers get them, they won't be disappointed again until Sunday. As of right now um in the death of night 2.0 has got a free promotion it's free through kindle or kindle unlimited if anybody wants to buy it that way
0: perfect any social media that you want to shout out as well like
1: instagram or facebook if you have anything twitter i i do actually have a facebook page you can find it by typing in the word hybrid novelist you know if anybody wants to you know drop me a line but that's about all I do on social media. I don't have Instagram, and, of course, I stay off, you know, uh, everything else, yeah. Twitter. I generally keep a low profile and try to market my books through other means, book promotions and so on and so forth. And I've got an author page on bookbub.com, of course, author page on Amazon as well. But uh, yeah. if anybody gets Good those you, books, man. I yeah, can, only... uh... <laughs> can guarantee they won't be disappointed. And leave
0: a review as well when you go purchase those books. I know the reviews are a big help for you guys, you authors out there. Matt Reed, uh, appreciate it very much, man.
1: Thank you, brother. It was my pleasure. All right. Everyone at home, thanks for listening. All right. Good day.